0: I
1: used to watch that show on FX, or it was on Spike TV. Did you ever watch anything on Spike
0: yes. TV? That's, that, really? I feel like that was beneath you. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was right in the era when I was a stay-at-home dad um, during the days, and like I worked part-time evenings or uh, video work and stuff, so I had a lot of time alone during the day, just like with a napping baby. Did you watch Deadliest Warrior? Yes. Yes,
1: I did.
2: Gosh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I loved that show. <laughs> because it was just jacked up dudes stabbing pieces of gelatin. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it as much when they used pig carcasses. And then a nerd would be like, oh, yeah, I took all this data in quotation that we we yes. acquired here <laughs> and plugged it into some bullshit Excel spreadsheet And now we're going to show you a dramatized battle. with Oh, my God, it was so dumb. I
3: loved it.
0: And they had, like, uh, a dude throwing playing cards versus a dude throwing ninja stars uh, kind of thing. I remember that.
1: Yeah, it was so fun. Spetsnaz versus Marines or Mm -hmm. whatever. I don't remember. That show was... That was, like, primetime 19... 20-year-old Sean
3: right there. <laughs> I can definitely see that. That all tracks. And you're in charge. I am? Yeah. The ball is mine? Mm-hmm. All right. Hello, and welcome to
1: Nashville...
0: <laughs> I was waiting until you're in took, the I middle of your a, drink.
1: I just
3: took a big gulp of water. I still have to do, like, my throat clears mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. drink a big drink of coffee. <clears throat> Why are your throat your throat clears so much more metal than mine? Because uh,
1: that's just how I used to do it. I don't know. <clears throat> when I used to sing, I would make sure that the, mm-hmm. the flim was clear. I don't even think I can do that. It's impressive. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. Nobody should.
3: (laughs) It's dumb. (laughs) (sighs) Okay. And begin. No, wait. Can you hear that? (laughs) Yeah, I can hear that.
0: (laughs) Show's a mess, man. (laughs)
2: What well, was uh, that?
3: It's like crashing symbols. It's the ice maker. I think it's good now. Okay. Okay. Take three. No. <laughs> Son of a...
0: Ah... Hello and welcome to Nashville CA, your bi-weekly, bi-movie podcast by two guys. Uh, I am one of the guys, Josh Ickes, in Nashville, and with me as always is...
1: Hee-haw, Josh. It's your buddy Sean
0: over here. (laughs) Okay, it's Sean, the coastal elite in California. (laughs) Coastal elite? That's rude. So is Hee-haw,
1: come on. What I hee haw is a delightful greeting from "It's a Wonderful Life." Who doesn't love a little hee haw?
0: Oh, hee haw, hee haw! That hee haw—you got to do your hand up by your head. Why? I don't know why. That's how Sam does it. He does. Yeah. Oh, he only did it. We only saw.
1: Okay, he, he did it at the moose.
0: At, All yeah, right, they do it at the end. Should,
1: should we? Should we start this episode over again? <laughs> no, just start from hee haw. <laughs> All right. There you go. I gave you the moose. Okay, good. Hi, Josh. Yeah. How are you, bud?
0: I'm doing pretty well today. Uh, it's been... It has been. It feels like... Has it been a while since we've done this? Or just normal time?
2: It's been
1: a
0: while. <laughs> you can get both of them in there. You're welcome. Uh, no, it's been about two weeks, I think. Okay, that sounds about right. Uh, maybe time just went slower for me here, because it's all relative. So, this week we are in the Christmas spirit. We are talking It's a Wonderful Life and Black Christmas. And on our, our text thread, we talked about uh, which movie we should do first because normally we like to start dark and go light. This time we decided to start light and go dark. But after rewatching It's a Wonderful Life, it's pretty damn dark. Through both of it's these a, films.
1: You you're the one that decided you wanted to go light and, and dark. hmm And then you definitely chose the darker movie to start with. <laughs> Black Christmas was like way more cheerful yes. than It's a
0: Wonderful Life. It's and God this, damn. this dude has balling such... at the at the
1: end of It's a Wonderful Life. Like, <laughs> God damn
3: it, Josh. I was this a supposed wreck. to be the feel-good. <laughs> Oh, it's a parry though. I, I really liked this one. I did, too. And
0: both. I mean, I don't really feel like we've had a bummer yet uh, in any of our picks, but both of these, I think, are like just fantastic movies. A bummer as in depressing? No, bummer as in like we, we picked a bad one.
1: Oh, uh, we neither of us were as that hot on Poltergeist
3: 2. Okay, okay, yeah. That's I would fair. say
1: that was our low point so far. And we both like that movie. Yes. So, uh, hey, look at that. You don't have to have a podcast where you're forced to watch bad movies.
0: I like that idea. We get to pick yeah, whatever just, we want. Just do what you want, man. <laughs> don't
1: get locked into shit and then get all angry and depressed about it.
0: It's <laughs> a good note.
1: <laughs> <laughs> ah. So, I don't... Did you choose a, "It's a Wonderful Life"?
0: Yes. Wait, did I? We I just, don't know.
1: It's kind of it was kind of a joint decision. But yeah. anyway, what's your history with this movie?
0: I mean the the classic American. I guess seeing it every year on television. Uh, it is my father's favorite movie, and therefore, it's one of the only movies he'll actually watch. Um, how
3: many movies will your dad watch? Well, he likes this one. He likes old dogs. What's
1: is that? A recent Jack Nicholson movie? No,
3: uh, I believe
0: it is. So there's two. There's Wild Hogs and there's Old Dogs that are both the same premise of uh, elderly men get on motorcycles.
1: This is what? Yes, this is okay.
0: Yeah, but John Travolta, like, like with John Travolta.
1: Oh, oh it's that John Travolta. Yeah. I think that's does, the one. Yeah. Does he like
0: wild hogs? I don't know. Maybe wild hogs is the one he likes, and old dogs (laughs) isn't the one. Maybe
1: wild hogs would be an incredible gift to give your dad, because he doesn't (laughs) like many things, but maybe that would be the one.
0: But I can't give it to him. He's out there living his wild hogs life. He's driving around Texas right now on his
3: motorcycle as we speak. Is he? Yeah. That's just what he's doing. At any rate... What is your
0: (laughs) history with this movie? Had you you, did you grow up loving it, never seen it, thought it was overrated? What was it?
1: I think I might have been shown this movie at least part of it at school at one point, but then after seeing the content in this movie, I'm like, there's no way they can show this to children. This is (laughs) This is insane. Like what are we what are we showing our kids? Um Honestly, my main connection is through Christmas Vacation. There's a shot where I think that the dads are asleep on the couch or something. I don't know. And there's a clip of the very end with the, the little girl. Mm-hmm. Every time the bell rings, rings and angel gets its wings. And <clears throat> so I knew of that. Honestly, I got this movie completely mixed up with
3: a Christmas story. Dickens. Okay, I thought Wait, Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol. Christmas yes. story is the
0: no. <laughs> the other Bob, Clark, Bob movie. Clark movie. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 not that, not that. Christmas
1: Carol, Dickens. So I thought Jimmy Stewart was getting visited by multiple Christmas ghost kind of things, mm-hmm. and instead of him then just presenting. A life where he didn't exist at all I thought they were going to show multiple different realities and so oh, okay. this movie actually was kind of uh, surprising also I thought Jimmy Stewart was going to take an Ebenezer Scrooge turn so there was a lot of things that I had expectations going into this movie which were wrong which actually made it um really fun and kind of surprising um, but again this is so dark This is so dark. I can't believe it is long. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like, I don't, I think that's the main reason I've never seen this movie is it's just, it would, would have been too long and too black and white for 10 year old, 12 year old me. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, I definitely misremembered this movie because I probably haven't seen it in, I don't know, like 12 years or something Um, after seeing it several times as a kid. In my memory, the last act is actually like most of the movie. The part where things are different in town. I was surprised
1: how late that came out.
0: Yeah. That
1: was a good hour plus into it.
0: Yeah, it really is. Just like the maybe the last quarter of the movie uh, is that section because I always associate clearance with it so much and their interactions and Jimmy Stewart, like finding his way in this new world as
3: being the meat of the movie, but it's really not. Yeah. What's your history with Jimmy Stewart in general? Um, I mean, it starts with this movie and would go
0: clear through, um, was it the man who shot Liberty Valance? I
3: think. Um, Winchester Seventy Three. Like, have you seen any of these old westerns? No, these are
1: these are all going way over my head.
0: Okay. Um. Ooh, also his Hitchcock run. Have you seen any of those?
1: I've seen um North by Northwest and Vertigo. <laughs> okay. And um, Rear Window. Was he in North by Northwest? I don't think so. No, that was Cary Grant. Okay. And uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I remember we watched that
0: one in school. Which is not a Hitchcock film, but is a Jimmy Stewart film. I know, I'm just saying just
1: in general. Yeah. Uh, But that's... Oh, and I saw Rope, which that must have been a real young man. And Anatomy of a Murder. I've seen a lot of Jimmy Stewart, apparently, that I'm just uh, not aware of.
0: Anatomy of a Murder is a great movie.
1: Anatomy of Murder was great. Rope was kind of an exercise. Mm -hmm. It it felt more like an exercise than it did a completed film. Yeah. Because it's all that like one-shot, single take, so it kind of looks like a film to play on a stage kind of thing.
0: Yeah, it's very much... But it's cool how they make the... How Hitchcock hides most of the cuts in between the reels, and then the way the background... Changes because it's a whole cyclorama outside that changes from uh, like afternoon light to, to evening to nighttime.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a real skill hiding yeah. and edit, especially back then. Mm-hmm. Um, some point we have to watch Children of Men. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Are you, are you do you like Children of Men? Because that movie has, I was just thinking of like the hidden edit thing, yeah, and some of those long takes, but yep. then also. That movie has some of the best world-building of show-don't-tell I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. It, 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 that movie is so packed with background information that tells you complete stories. It, it's really incredible.
0: That is, when you go to each different like, location that he visits on his journey, and there's like, a different encampment of people there that lead him into the next place, it's always like, like that's a whole world. It reminds me, um, actually, when we were watching uh, Blade Runner, when he goes to that orphanage um, where the guy's making all the kids work the sweatshop or whatever. um, I was like, you could have a whole movie that's just here. But that reminded me of Children of Men
3: uh, when he goes to, like, the encampment and everything. Yeah, totally. Sorry to completely veer us off track there. Um, So
1: It's a Wonderful Life is directed by Frank Capra. Mm-hmm. Who is a famous name that I also know nothing about do you can you educate me
2: um
0: not really. I have this very large book um,
1: <laughs> I love that we really we yeah. really put the research into this
0: <laughs> i've got it is I've had this book recommended to me by um uh Cameron, my good buddy who uh, has directed a lot of the things that I've shot and has produced some of my stuff. Um, it's called Frank Capper, the name above the title. And it's like a, it's supposed to be a really good Hollywood history book. And I bought it a couple of years ago and it's sitting on my bottom shelf right now, looking at me and
3: <laughs> judging you.
0: Yes. And really I'm intimidated because it's kind of, it's a thick book and I'm, I'm a little bit scared of it.
1: Yeah. Well, I've only seen Mr. Smith Goes to Washington of his movies. So, I feel like if you really want to learn something, you shouldn't come to this show. (laughs) (laughs) At least not about these. Yeah, it's just not what
3: we do. I don't know. Oh, It Happened One Night. It Happened One Night is a really cute movie. I've seen that one, too. I have not. See, you looked through his filmography, and there's a lot of things I recognize,
0: but not uh have not seen ooh he also directed a lot of propaganda films during world war 2
1: yeah i saw i saw one of his posters just had a giant red swastika in the background I was like oh boy
3: <laughs> but uh yes so did you know
0: that it's a wonderful life was uh, investigated as being communist propaganda Back when it came out,
3: no, but that
1: makes
0: complete sense because this
1: movie's very anti-capitalist.
0: Yes, <laughs> and uh, the Mister Potter, the rich
3: man in town, he's the worst person in the world. I hate him.
1: Great performance.
3: Yeah, uh, he's. I couldn't
1: tell if they gave him makeup to make him look extra gaunt and kind of skeletal, or -hmm. if that's just how this guy looked. Um, But man, he plays a great evil rich asshole. Yes. Played by uh, Lionel Barrymore. Yeah. Mr. Potter.
3: Of the famous Barrymore clan. Who are they? Oh, Drew? I believe Drew is a descendant. Wow. Yeah. Now I know where
1: she gets her looks from. (laughs)
3: <laughs> that didn't mean that. That, that that's,
1: that's not true. Wait a second. That's not true. That's not. That's not nice. true. Uh.
2: That's
1: not true. I found Drew very attractive around the time of Charlie's Angels one. Okay. And the Wedding Singer. I found her very attractive in the Wedding Singer. Oh,
0: she's a delight in the Wedding Singer. That's she true. is.
1: Okay, Drew. So it was just a bad joke. There was nothing intentional.
0: Um. <laughs> uh. But yeah, they, uh, the FBI and uh, the House Un-American Activities Committee, the HUAC board, um, brought up this movie and apparently did some preliminary research into it. And the idea that the other two screenwriters, apart from Capra, were um, either known communists or known to commune with communists. And... Eat meals with communists and had briefly lived with a communist uh, so it was both the content and the people behind the, the scenes that got this movie uh investigated
1: well I love it because they knew what they were doing mm-hmm. they snuck a little communist dagger into the Christmas side of America right where we are vulnerable and I had know. our defenses down Christmas with Jimmy Stewart like <laughs> There's nothing malicious about that. That has to be well-intentioned. And now it's just this iconic piece of, like, Americana. And it's a complete letter of, like, (laughs) anti-capitalism. Everyone come together and help each other out so that way there's not one rich asshole sitting at the top.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Everybody can have a nice house if we spread the wealth around. Yeah. That's... Yeah. Um, What did you think? So you don't have a big history with Jimmy Stewart. Um...
3: I'd say I
0: have
1: a pretty big uh,
0: history.
3: Let's
1: not go diminishing my history of Jimmy Stewart. I call him Jimmy. I'm not here
0: calling him James. Jimmy James Stewart. James Maitland uh, Stewart.
1: Also, Jimmy Stewart went on Johnny Carson and wrote a letter or a poem that he wrote after his dog had died. And it is crushing. He, He makes Johnny Carson cry. Oh, my uh, gosh. It, it, yeah. Yeah. Don't watch it.
0: See, you're just mentioning <laughs> it right now. And because we're so close to the fallout from me watching this movie, my eyes are welling up.
1: Oh, no, I can't. Buster's old. Like, Buster's real old now. And it's oh. I'm vulnerable. So,
0: yeah. Um. <laughs> Moving on. But what did you think of Jimmy Stewart's performance in this? Because, for me... You know, even though I have watch a lot of black and white movies and I really enjoy them, I don't have any, like, pretensions against them, I do think of black and white movies as as having, like, a very kind of stagey acting style. And I think Jimmy Stewart is really, like,
3: really emotional in this
0: movie. He's got the voice, which
1: is, like, old-timey classic Hollywood kind of odd. Mm-hmm. But he's charismatic in the charismatic scenes, but more importantly, like the vulnerability that he shows when he's standing on the edge of that bridge and he starts crying as he's begging God to show him the way. Mm-hmm. I, for a man in the 40s to be acting like that, I don't... I was really surprised to see it and how... It looks. It was long takes and stuff. You, know, you mm-hmm. got to really see the emotions swell and like rise and ebb and tide, ebb and flow off of this guy's face. Um, it was it was a really incredible performance. I was with him a hundred percent the whole way.
0: Yeah, I think. Uh, and the thing is, he has to pull off being youthful and exuberant. And then
1: I mean, he's he's like 19 years old. Yes, start this yes. That was like when we watched The Blob and 45 year old Steve, Steve McQueen's McQueen. like, hey, Get out of here, you 17 year old punk kid.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like, what's going on in this world? But he does, like, he's got he's he's young, and then when he gets older, they put a little bit of gray in his hair around the temples. Um, but. He switches from that like very excitable uh, wants to kick the dust off the small town off his feet kind of guy to someone who's just been beaten down by life and is so he gets so bitter for a good section of this movie that I mean, it hurt. it It's like when he is wishing that they didn't have children anymore that like that it hits something that's a that's a strong note that i feel like uh i mean he he was kind of like the tom hanks of his day right like america loved this guy and he was kind of everybody's genial uncle and then to play something like that where he is that bitter for a good chunk of this movie i think is really striking
1: his arc is quite incredible to think about the cocky teenager to the cocky businessman to the completely broken man, to then coming back. It's like, it's, it's like a, oh God. (laughs) That's an edit for sure. (laughs) That's not a funny joke to leave in me coughing up a (laughs) furball. His arc is like a sine wave where you start at zero and you go all the way up and then you break through when you go all the way down below zero Mm -hmm. and then you come back out the other side. And... It it it's really such a good performance. Did he win Oscars for this or anything? I, I imagine he
0: must have, right? No, he was nominated. The film was nominated across your big categories, picture, director, actor, editing, sound recording, and uh, technical achievements. And the only one it won was the technical achievement award. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
1: I wonder if that was like a a response against the communist
0: themes in it. Uh, the best years of our lives was the big winner that swept everything that year, which I have never seen. Um, Sounds like something my grandma would like.
3: Oh, have you ever seen? Speaking of grandma films, uh, how green was my valley? No, never, <laughs> never, never heard of it. I was, I, was, I was gonna, I was gonna make a. A joke
1: but it was it, the joke wasn't there that's, that's why i just paused
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh oh <laughs> uh,
1: no how green is your valley
3: well
0: the the irony is that it's about a um uh, a mining town and a mining family in wales uh, but it's a john ford film um that was one of those i don't know why uh when like amc or um, Turner classics or whatever would do blocks of of movies. I would always see the beginning of this one get played because it was after whatever I would watch. Um, So it was stuck in my head. And finally I was like, okay, I need to watch the rest of this movie. And it's, it is freaking great. It is just a fantastic film. And it was one of those that I was once again, like, yeah, it's some old black and white, blah, 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 blah. You know, I know what those are.
1: When I was a kid, God forbid the TV landed on the Turner Classic Movies channel. <laughs> I could not change the channel fast enough, man. I was very averse to movies pre I don't know, 80s probably. Okay. Maybe some of the later stuff from the 70s if it has a high production. Um still to this day one thing that really throws me off is um like that just bad uh, audio dialogue or bad ADR or Mm, um, Italian giallo style where like nothing's matching up because they didn't even bother to record audio. That's that still to this day remains a hurdle for me. Um, But I've watched in the past year with um, my Sunday um, morning movie club, I've watched a lot of stuff from like the fifties and forties and thirties. And so I'm getting a lot better with it.
0: Okay. That's uh, two things. First of all, the giallo, I didn't, I knew that they did all post sound recording and it's different actors a lot of the time. And a lot of the people don't speak the same language when they're on set together um, because you see John Saxon in there. And I can't imagine John Saxon Speaking French or Italian. Um, it was
1: good to see John Saxon in this. He's he's kind of like a comfort blanket when he shows up on screen.
0: Oh, in Black Christmas,
1: yeah, and he's also in the, the Nightmare on Elm Streets and stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't. It's, it's just one of those comforting actors. His comb over in this. Wow, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I feel like John Saxon must have committed because he was he was kind of a balder guy later in life, wasn't he? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. You can tell he's trying to hide it in this one.
0: Uh but in those giallos, they would have people not even recite any dialogue. They would just have them count so their mouths were moving. Or say the ABCs in their language so their mouths are flapping. And then they would record dialogue over it.
1: Okay, I thought, I thought they would record dialogue on set and then maybe use the Italian feed or like the Italian
0: actors. And For then, the Italian version? Yeah, yeah and then use that as
1: like a, a base audio... I didn't realize that they completely were making that shit up.
0: Yeah, I think in both giallos and um, spaghetti westerns they would do that um, trick, where it kind of doesn't matter what you say, just hold a conversation.
1: We need to watch some spaghetti westerns, my friend, because that is a genre... westerns in general. I have not seen that many.
3: Oh, we should... I've
1: seen the more modern stuff, like Tombstone... Yeah, yeah. Your bone tomahawks, your 310 to yumas. Um but as far as like the old olds I've seen hang 'em high and the good the bad and the ugly.
0: Okay, so the two of the the classic uh Clint Eastwood of those no
1: no name man.
0: Yeah. The the four that he did there. Um the one Perk and I have been talking about is um the Great Silence. He tells me that I need to watch that one because we both watched Django and they showed it at his theater recently. Uh, the original Django that Django Unchained is based on. And that is a fucking awesome film. Like a shotgun blast of a film. It was yeah? so energetic and fun and gritty and didn't out- overstay its welcome.
1: It was. As someone who was not crazy about the Tarantino movie. Mm-hmm. I, I it was good, but I I'm in no I have no desire to rewatch that movie. Would I like the original
3: more? Oh yes, it is it, he took just the name um so it is it's totally separate
0: storyline and character and everything. As a matter of fact, in Django Unchained,
3: the character that modern Django meets in the bar is Franco Nero who played Django in the original
1: movie <laughs> I'm sorry, sometimes I just like to throw some dead air at you <laughs> it,
0: it was the dead air with the big eyes that really the did dead, it the yes, dead air the,
1: with the dead stare <laughs> yes
0: and i don't think we've ever commented on the fact that you record facing a window so you have this nice uh natural kind of soft light that that plays across your face as you were recording and i record facing away from a window so i'm like a dark babadook looking creature most of the time with bright blown out windows behind me
1: (laughs) yeah it often feels like i'm talking to one of those interviews where they're hiding the identity of the person, so they just shoot them in silhouette.
2: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, God. Also, it.
1: it's funny that you say natural lighting because right now I have a grow light, an LED bar with red oh. and blue lights on it. So that's why I look kind of purple. It's probably not good for like my vision to have this back there, but that's, uh, I'm growing, uh, Nepenthes, which are pitcher plants, they're carnivorous plants, and that's the the photo I showed you, or the plant I showed you right before oh, okay. we started recording. Uh, so I, they get twelve light, twelve hours a day of that light bar, and in, in addition to the morning sun, and they seem to love it.
0: I use grow lights in music videos um, for to like
3: simulate club lighting. Really? Yep. It's, uh,
1: some of those grow lights are r- like really, really bad for your eyes. Oh, yeah. I wear can imagine UV, that. UV, UV lights. Uh, we're way off track, man. Ghosts are not ghosts. Angels. <laughs> angels. See, at the start of this movie, I thought they were there ghosts. ghosts. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Angels
3: are galaxies. Yes. Or, and uh, apparently, um, angels without wings
0: are just individual stars.
1: The ghosts.
0: The angels.
1: angels, uh, One of them gets the job that has to go help George Bailey,
0: and we get a bunch of people praying for George Bailey. And this is, the angel is Clarence, uh, who was a clockmaker. Clarence Oddbody uh, is the angel's name, which I think is fun. It is fun.
1: Uh, One of the first scenes we get is The whole snow thing where the kids are sliding down shovels. One of them goes into the water. And Jimmy Stewart dives in, George Bailey, and saves the kid. But somehow this gives him pneumonia and deafens him in the left ear. Being cold does not make you sick. There's like old wives' tale that like temperature will get you sick. It's not true. Bacteria and germs get you sick. Temperature... Doesn't do anything,
0: but uh, there's two instances of people catching cold because of being cold in this movie, which yeah. was just yeah.
1: No, it happens a lot. It was just it part of the course.
0: Lot. So uh, the kid who went in the water is George's kid brother Harry. Uh, also, did you see all of the all of the boys in this are wearing the same beanie? Did you no, notice this? They no. have. It's they all have beanies with pom poms on top, and all the beanies have a skull and crossbones patch on the front.
1: That's that's weird. There's a skull on Potter's desk later. Yeah, he has like some weird ornate skull thing. That doesn't seem like they would allow boys to wear skull and crossbones in the 40s, or this would have been like the 20s.
0: Yeah, this was supposed to have taken place in the 20s, uh, or 1919, as we see later um but i th- i think you know they were playing pirates probably something like i guess so or they
1: were just celebrating the end of world war 1 yeah as you do i guess um well yeah i mean as you do because we see later they they talk about celebrating ve day and vj, V-J day and, yeah and then bj day um that's a different
0: story so george has an after school job working for the druggist mr gower um, and all of these people that we meet at the very beginning come back into play later. Um, Mr. Gower runs a, like I said, a, a pharmacy, but it's an old-fashioned pharmacy with a soda shop in it, which is awesome, I think. Have you been I to imagine, one of these?
1: No, I, but I imagine you growing up, like, down the street from one of these.
0: So we had um, a couple drugstores with lunch counters in them. Uh, and then actually down here, uh, just outside of Nashville, there's a place that I love um, that serves great burgers that is literally like three aisles of a drugstore and a few booths and old, big, old timey mirror and soda machines. I go there and get my favorite meal of a, a cheeseburger and a chocolate shake every once in a while. That's that's pretty. And I sit and I read a book in an old get, in an old store.
3: It's great. You get fries with that? They don't do fries. They, they don't have room for a fryer because it's an old store.
1: That That's a tough pill to swallow.
3: What? <laughs> you can't do a burger without fries?
1: I prefer not to. <laughs> As, I'm like, Bartleby, the hamburger eater. I would, I would prefer, <laughs> I, not, I prefer to. not to. <laughs>
3: uh,
1: he walks in, uh, little George, and he pulls on that lighter thing—it's some kind of chance thing where you pull the handle and then it it strikes a uh, flint. I couldn't quite tell what that thing was.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Uh,
1: some kind of game of chance. Yes. And um, I remember as a kid always doing the uh, test your strength thing or the the love meter mm-hmm, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Those things are full of shit because I would often score in like a nine or a ten and be like, <laughs> "You're destined for love," and no.
0: It could it could just be reading you being full of love, though.
1: It could. You don't it necessarily could. have
0: a receptacle for your love.
1: <laughs> hey, and romantic love is not the only kind of love, as we'll see later on in this movie. Oh. Uh, so these kids that are hanging out at this shop, they seem they're, like they're... 30 years old (laughs) yes it's like the one girl's like hanging out at the bar and george is acting like he's woody harrelson or ted Uh dancing like behind the bar like what can i get you sweetheart it's like
0: how old are these kids it was great uh at the bar is mary and then mary in walks (laughs) what do you can you do it i cannot do do a
3: a jimmy oh mary that's a pretty good jimmy uh. <laughs> do it. I can't. Oh, Mary. That's all that's, I got. That's not bad. We'll we'll we'll
1: as we hit some other lines as we go forward, we'll we'll work on it.
3: Okay.
0: Uh and in walks another little girl, uh Violet Bick, who we see her fortunes play out through the rest of the film as well. Uh Mary's got a crush on George. Violet is Already at like eight years old, or whatever however old she is here, she's kind of a vamp. She's like flirting and like bouncing her curls and stuff at George.
1: Uh, she
2: and she knows likes what all the boys. Wants.
0: Yes,
1: she says to him, "Okay." In his deaf ear, she says, "I'm going to
0: love him until he dies." That's Mary. Mary says that. Mary says that. Yes. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Mm. So both of these young women know exactly what they want in Jeez, life.
1: man. I mean, you save one kid's life and suddenly you're the heartthrob of the town, huh?
0: Yeah, he's the town hero.
1: Also, I don't think deaf ears work like that. Because I don't think someone can just, like, talk into your deaf ear You can still hear it through your other ear.
0: You could also sense that somebody is about three and a half inches away from your head.
1: (laughs) He he must have been like the hot breath of her saying, I'm going to love you until (laughs) we're dead. That's a big promise and commitment to make as an (laughs) eight-year-old.
0: So, Mr. Gower, the druggist, just got news that his son was killed and he goes on a bender, uh, which causes him to accidentally put poison into somebody's medicine order. I don't know if it's actual poison or just the wrong medicine or what.
1: I don't know. And why? Are, why does he have poison in little capsules that seem to be meant for human consumption?
0: Yeah, it's you because you feed them to the rats. <laughs>
1: I know. But that's like, are you think? I don't know. It come in a different form yeah. or something that would be more obvious. Of like, don't swallow this.
0: Shouldn't there be a different section of your drugstore for the poison? <laughs> That's
1: the other thing, That's like if milk and bleach both came in white cardboard containers and they were both kept refrigerated right (laughs) next to each other it's like, good luck assholes
0: Get some real Darwin awards going here Uh, and George sees this and goes to his dad to try to figure out what to do Uh, This is where we meet Uncle Billy, we meet Mr. Potter, who finances everything in the town. Uh, he's a mean old jerk. And we find out that uh, George's family runs the local building and loan. Did you know what a building and loan was? <laughs> As opposed to no, a bank? I, I
1: thought that they were some kind of construction company that mm-hmm. would also do the loan. Or so. I, I, was, I got it. I figured it out by the end and it seems like they're just a smaller independent bank.
0: But I think it's more like a co-op. But it's like
1: a commu- a communal fund.
0: Yes. It's like I think you buy shares of it and then your money goes to loan to other people.
1: Uh, That's yeah, when he describes that one guy who wants his $200. Yes. Yeah. It's all about the pot going around to help each other out, but Yep. Um I, I did not. I've never heard of this before. Uh, Uncle Billy can't get right in this movie. No. Poor Uncle Billy has two string reminders on his finger, but doesn't remember shit. And uh, when George's dad is getting emasculated, basically, mm-hmm. by Potter in front of his son, you ever experienced that as a kid with your dad? Your dad getting a dressing down? No. My dad one time... Flipped a guy off in traffic, uh-huh. and then we hit a red light, and the guy pulled oh up next to my dad. It was like, what's wrong with you? You got your son in there, and you flipped me off, and what's like, blah, 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 blah. And it was just like, oh, it was such a cringe moment for me. of just like, oh, that didn't work out for you, did it, Dad?
0: <laughs> uh, ironically, there was one time when a woman, um, I was with my mom, and this woman parked my mom in. Uh, when we were at the video store, which is also a drugstore that also had a lunch counter um, <laughs> and, and a small town. And uh, when the woman finally got in her car and left, my mom followed her to the gas station next door and then parked her in and refused to move. <laughs> Whoa. Yes. Wow. That's escalating. For being like 5'2", my mom is kind of a badass, and a little bit frightening.
1: Yeah. All moms are scary. Yeah. Something about childbirth. Just once you go through that, you're capable of terrible things.
0: (laughs) But also because she would frequently unload um, grocery trucks, my mom could, in her prime, beat me at arm wrestling when I was, like, 20. And she was, like, you know, 40 or whatever. 43 i guess uh yeah she was still like worked out regularly and was rough (laughs) can kick your ass
1: uh so what where do we go next time wise um
0: we're about to advance right well we go back to um Mr. Gowers for a second. Oh, Gower starts
1: beating the shit out of him. Yes.
0: George. This is crazy. George tells him that he didn't deliver the pills because Gower put poison in him and Gower doesn't believe him and thinks he's just being a slacker and smacks the shit out of little George.
1: His blood coming out of his ear. Yeah. Oh, This is insane. Yeah, his, his bad ear. And then he tastes the poison, which is like, that's poison, and the man's (laughs) first instinct is then to taste taste it, it. (laughs) and then he immediately does the, like, abusive asshole thing of then just, like, giving you hugs, like, oh, I'm so sorry, it's Uh okay, just like, no, dude, you just beat the shit out of a kid that was your employee.
0: Yeah, somebody else's kid, this kid is... Your Not even your ward, he just works for you. That's insane. Uh, then we jump forward some number of years. George is planning to go to Europe and then go off to school. Uh, Mr. Gower got him some luggage as a gift, so shown that he has grown to appreciate George over time.
1: That was sweet. Yeah. That he had already set up that briefcase uh george runs into a blonde woman is that the same woman that was the kid yes we saw
2: yeah that's Violet. Uh,
1: i I really got a big laugh when she goes to cross the street everyone stops to look at her and one guy almost gets hit by a car Uh and then you get a big (laughs) (laughs)
2: just
1: uh,
0: the awooga will make me laugh every time and i never realized that there's a sex joke in this scene, as well, so George is talking with Bert and Ernie, yes, that yeah, their names are Bert and Ernie. That's where Bert and Ernie came from. Uh, That's wow, so I was
1: going to ask yeah,
0: Ernie is the cab driver. Bert is a cop. uh, all three men and the various passerby watch Violet as she's walking away, and then Bert the cop goes, "I think I'm going to go home and see what my wife is doing." <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's funny. <laughs> That is very risque yes. for the 40s. Oh, my God.
0: Uh, this is where George's dad tries to get him to come work for the building and loan. Uh, but George says he's already spent his time, or I guess continue working um, for them. He, George wants to go do something big and important. He doesn't think what his dad does is important. And if he doesn't get away from town, he's going to bust.
1: He tells his dad, he's like... I'm gonna say something shocking. You're a great guy.
2: Yes. It's like, man,
1: I in the forties you really weren't allowed to express any
0: emotion or love towards your father, were you? It's really uh I feel like that's how the Midwest stayed, though.
1: Really? Yes. Well, I mean, I'm not really one to talk about having a healthy <laughs> father relationship, so I live in a glass house, and here I am throwing rocks <laughs> throwing all stones. over the place.
2: Uh,
1: the Charleston dance is the next thing I have, the high school dance. yeah, graduation dance. That dance competition is chaos. Yes. They're, they're supposed to judge that, and the room just erupts into absolute mayhem. Those dances, everyone looks coked out of their minds on the dance floor.
0: Um... And I, I think it was probably in the Coca-Cola at that point, right? Like, it was, I, Yeah, I think it was so. It's still okay. You just uh, go
1: down the street, get a burger and a cocaine tonic.
0: Yep. Uh, this is where he runs into Mary again. Who Mary! Is, is now played by Donna Reed, who is luminous, as far as I'm concerned. You see her across that dance floor just like he does, and the light, the soft lights across her face, and she smiles at him, and it's like, of course he would have a crush on her.
1: This is why I feel like movies have misled me because (laughs) shit like this does not happen. Yeah, but (laughs) growing up, I was like waiting for like a movie magical love moment to sweep me off my feet or something.
3: As far as I'm concerned, this doesn't exist. Uh but wouldn't it be great if it did uh also wouldn't it
0: be great if your gym was built over a swimming pool? Uh,
3: yeah, we didn't have a pool in high school, oh really
1: Mm-mm.
3: yeah, and I else, guess I went to We this. had a
1: swim team, but I don't know where they swim
0: we had our we had a big field house with a gym uh like I think we had like a regular gym, then kind of a big auxiliary gym. And then uh, the pool area as well and weight rooms and stuff. So
1: everything was inside at your school. Huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you have lockers? Yes. I never had a locker in my life. Really? California. We don't do lockers.
0: See, that's that is untrue because <laughs> I have now seen in three different f- films. They might have all been shot at the same place, but three different films feature California with lockers. Oh, four. You- that I can think you, of.
1: You you're just thinking of every John Hughes movie?
0: No, because those all took place in uh Central Illinois. Well, I, I look
1: like an asshole. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I am thinking of uh the Karate Kid. Um the movie Yeah, Get your macho out of here. The movie Brick. Um Ooh, I didn't my I know
1: you don't. That, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I just want to punch him in the face. <laughs> keep keep going.
0: Um the oh uh in Halloween, they have lockers. These are all outside lockers, though. And I know it's supposed to take place in Illinois, but it was actually shot in, what, Pasadena? Um, and then the new movie, Licorice Pizza, also has outdoor lockers
3: in the high school. I know that's a good movie. I have zero compulsion to watch it.
1: Um, It's the I, title... Combined with, like, a teenage love story period piece,
3: (sighs) none of that screams watch me to me. I've been on the fence with it, and
0: then my gang of guys went to see the preview of it the other night, Uh, and Andrew is going again either tonight or tomorrow night to see it, uh, because they're doing another preview with Alana Haim. Introducing it at the Bell Court, um, which would be kind of cool. But he loved it. It's like his movie of the year. He's putting it above Pig, which
3: I find unconscionable. Hmm. Pig is. We should do a little addendum. Oh yeah, movie
1: of the year. Pig would be up there for me for sure. I still think about it.
3: I do too. It it hit me. Yeah, it's a grower, not a shower. <laughs> Nicholas Cage, um, famously a grower, not a shower.
1: So Jimmy Stewart steps in and uh, steals Mary away. So Mary's date or whatever gets mad and gets the key and splits the, the gymnasium pool. They fall in. It cracked me up that uh, George and Mary kept dancing uh-huh. as they were in the pool. <laughs> but the whole crowd, nobody warning them. That they were about to fall to their demise, and yes. everyone just playing it up like it was like a big event that was so exciting. It was like watching a football or a, a soccer stadium.
0: Everybody, as they dance close to the edge, the whole crowd goes "woo!" Ah, and Jimmy Stewart goes, "Hey, we must be pretty good." <laughs> like it's a, it's a silly joke, uh, and them falling is real corny, but I think it's really cute too. Uh, that gym floor is so thick when the pieces move apart. Like, the logistics of actually building this thing are terrifying to me. Like, there's just so much involved with it that I'm like, just build another building. They, they said that they built it to save money on building another building. I'm like, this seems ridiculous.
1: I know, and just evaporation mm-hmm. of a giant pool underneath a basketball floor that is, I don't know if you know, if you ever played basketball, it primarily made of wood. <laughs> Generally speaking, yeah. And wood and water, I don't know if you've ever done any woodworking. They don't really like each other. They're not good friends. No. So you have done woodworking and played basketball.
0: Yes, I'm, I'm famously a woodworker basketball player. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a regular my, Nick Offerman over here. My, my next joke is this porch
1: man is very funny, and I don't know what that means.
0: <laughs> oh, because George and Mary are walking home and singing oh, yeah. Buffalo Gals. Uh,
1: and their clothes are pretty hysterical, actually, that he's wearing like a football uniform, yes. and she's just in a robe.
0: Yep. Uh, yeah, and this, guy,
1: this guy on the porch watching these two teenagers on this date, yeah, he did crack me up. Yeah,
0: <laughs> some old... Some old pervert sitting on a porch, smoking a cigar, reading his newspaper, watches these two kids go past. And he's like, why don't you kiss her? Stop talking her ear off and make out.
1: (laughs) This is, uh, we get the great line, I'll I'll lasso the moon for you. Yes. That's what you
0: want. The the little bit about she can swallow it and the moonbeams that shoot out of her, the ends of her hair and the tips of her fingers. What is it you want, Barry? What do you want?
1: You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it
3: down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Mary.
2: I'll
0: take it. Then what?
3: Well, then you could swallow it
1: and it'd all dissolve, see? And the moonbeams would shoot out of your fingers and your toes and the ends of your hair.
0: Like, that's... He's such a romantic character. Like, he's got that charm that's really sweet, I think.
1: Oh yeah, and I'm, I'm predisposed to just not liking charming, charismatic like guys like this, especially when it's like a teenager who's just chasing girls. Mm-hmm. That really usually is a character I'm not going to like. But Jimmy Stewart plays it so perfectly and with like such I don't know purity, mm-hmm. piousness. I don't know how that I, I'm fully with this guy.
0: Yeah. Um, and I
1: love, there's one great joke that he does where it's like, when he steps on the robe, the tail, and she ends up in the bushes, uh-huh. He he's talking, he's looking at the robe, and he's like, he's looking at it like she's just been taken away in the rapture. <laughs> <laughs> her, yes. her corporeal form has <laughs> left this earth now, and she's gone.
0: The uh, that little sequence also stuck in my mind. This whole little bit of them singing and then seeing the old rundown house on the edge of town. Uh, and George thinks that it's just some spooky rundown house, but Mary sees it as this romantic place that could be full of life again. Uh, I always thought that was really, really sweet. Um, but there is something about watching this when you're like 10 or 12 years old. And just the idea that there's a naked lady in a bush. Like, you're like, am I going to see a naked lady now on this show on PBS?
1: Uh, The answer is
2: no. (laughs) No.
0: The closest I
1: remember, oh, watching Christmas Vacation. Remember the scene where the woman is in the pool, Chevy Chase is daydreaming, and then she gets out of the pool and she's topless and it's like, it just is about to get to the boobs and then Mm -hmm. it's a hard cut. That scene was always so awkward for me to watch with my family.
0: (laughs) So awkward. Okay. The much worse than that, I would argue, is the beginning of Lethal Weapon, which starts with a woman who is coked out of her mind wearing only a, like, a, a nightgown, a see through nightgown that is open and there's full frontal nudity and then she commits suicide. That's an awkward scene to watch repeatedly with your mother.
1: You guys watch that one a lot, huh?
0: Yes, that was one of our Christmas movies.
1: Okay. <laughs> and it didn't get any easier as time went on?
0: I don't think so. I mean, the the saving grace is that um, my mom was very chill, and then she would get excited when you see Mel Gibson's butt later in the yeah, film. Yeah, I
3: mean...
1: 80s Gibson butt. That was some primetime butt. Yes, that's good butt. It's when it was still Australian.
0: Yes, tanned and taut. Yep. Yeah. That's Little
1: practically Mad bad Max Max's butt. butt. Yeah, Yeah. still got some Australian dirt up the crack. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: uh, but while they're flirting, someone drives past and they're looking for George because his father has just had a stroke.
1: Yeah, this is where I wrote... uh, So, It's a Wonderful Life is the basis for the show, Succession. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. is the exact same plot of that show. But I would argue this is way better.
3: Ooh. Hot takes coming in from Sean.
1: Eh, Succession's okay. Um, It's not as funny as it wants to be, and it's not as profound as it thinks it
0: is. Like so many things, I uh binged the first season and then a couple episodes of the second season and then took some time off of the binge and have never picked it up again.
1: You could pick it up because so much of that show is just meaningless business speak, yeah. bureaucratic speak that doesn't doesn't even mean anything, or to me at least, and doesn't seem to have any significance to the plot. Like you don't have to understand any of those things. Uh yeah, it's basically if Tom and Greg weren't on Succession, I don't think I would stick with it.
0: Um, I've seen bits and pieces because Elizabeth is on the, sc- the current season, and I don't care enough to like remove myself from the room when she's watching it. Um, so sometimes I'll sit and watch something on my iPad with my headphones on uh, just to be close to her while we're watching things because I like that, or I'll read or something. Yeah, so
2: you, you,
1: you've basically seen the show, then.
0: Yes. <laughs> uh, I did take the headphones off, though, and watch a good chunk of the Kindle's Party episode, um, which was incredibly cringeworthy all the way through. Anything with Kindle is incredibly cringeworthy.
1: Yeah. And how do you feel about method actors after the fallout of that whole <sighs> Vanity Fair interview with Jeremy
0: Strong? oh i it made me feel good of people like coming to his defense um and saying that he's not that bad to work with because I want to think that nobody is that bad, but it seems rough it seems like when he talked about having the prop department make him special versions of the props that he could take home and study with, like practice with or whatever um that was and it's not like a gun, it was a photo album. Like he wanted to just
1: get the yellow pages out.
0: Yeah. It's oh uh, like yeah. that seems a little bit above and beyond to me.
1: All I'll say is it seems like perfect casting. Yes. For a character who is so oblivious to what an asshole he
0: is. It, so a someone who it would be classified as a tryhard.
1: Yeah. Um uh, moving on. We get, uh, what happens next? We get... George... Oh, the, the, the business meeting with Potter and Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart delivers one hell of a monologue yes. in, this, in this boardroom. This, <laughs> yep. is, this is like his sequel to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington right here.
0: Yep, that's pretty much my note exactly. Uh, they're in the boardroom. George has given up his Europe trip to help the building alone after his dad passes away because Mr. Potter is trying to shut it down. Uh, and then Jimmy Stewart kind of washes his hands of everything. And he's like, the board can do what they want. Like I've seen this along as far as I can. Um, and if you want to turn it over to Potter, that's your business now. And then, but Mr. Potter can't resist like bad mouthing George's dad and saying that he was bad at business and stupid for trusting in the people of the town, and what did that ever get anybody? Uh, you know, because it doesn't make money to... It doesn't make you personally more monetarily wealthy to do that, but it makes you a better human, and Potter cannot understand that.
2: Yeah,
1: Potter says, we'll have like a weak working class because we need to basically <laughs> separate the wheat from the chaff of mm-hmm. the strong workers from the weak, and. Yeah, some real capitalist asshole speak.
0: And uh, I think this is where it comes out that um, Potter has his own houses that he builds and charges people too much for uh, in their shitty houses. Um, George mentioned something about it. And so people basically can never get out of the poverty once they're in a Potter home.
1: I feel like this phrase has come up once before but after the monologue, Potter calls it sentimental hogwash. Mm-hmm. I swear we've had that phrase in another movie that we've watched. Oh, okay. I I love that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's such a great way to dismiss somebody. I mean, it's a terrible thing to say, but
0: it's hilarious. It's also uh, like Potter's comment on the thesis of the movie as a whole, <laughs> basically. <laughs>
1: Uh, So George decides to take over the business. He gives the money that he would have traveled with to Harry and sends Harry to college. His plan is in four years, Harry will come back and run the company. But Harry arrives via train. He's married a woman and her dad has given Harry a job. (laughs) Yeah, this whole thing of like especially just your brother showing up married and you didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. So like George shakes her hand at first and then is like, Oh, what am I doing? Like I got a, this is exciting, but it's so awkward. Cause it's like a secret marriage. That's, that's a hard thing to
0: respond to. But also the fact that George in this, the, the beginning of this scene is talking to uncle Billy and showing him the travel brochures of places he's going to go. Like, He's excited once again. He gets to leave town as soon as Harry comes home. And then Harry shows up and has leapfrogged his brother by having a job elsewhere and having a wife. Like, George has completed none of his plans, and Harry is out there living like a real life. And George
3: feels like he's just marking time, stuck in town. Yeah. Violet. Adult Violet now uh, starts chatting up George, and she freaks out because he
0: suggests that they go walk in the grass in their bare feet. <laughs> He's like, "Let's go climb the mountain and like look at the stars together, and hold hands, and go up to the falls and uh, feel the grass on our feet, and all this stuff." And she's like, "What are you crazy? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can't you can't touch the earth yes. with your skin."
2: <laughs>
3: Uh,
1: um, so Uncle Billy, the d- drunk fool that this movie makes him out to be, gets very drunk. It's on the porch talking to George and looking for his hat, which is on his head. George grabs it and holds it out to him, and he says, "It's the middle one." Yeah, uh, real crackups these two. And this is where uh, I think George was out smoking a cigarette, and he hears the train whistle, and then he looks at his brochures and throws him away because he said earlier he he had a great line that the three greatest sounds in the world are what a a train engine a a jet and a Uh, boat something like that yeah
0: anchor chains
1: and so that little moment where he hears the train that he would have been on taken off and throwing away his dreams
0: and at the same time his mom is telling him to go across town to call on mary because she's back in town and everybody knows that she has a crush on george and Yeah,
1: he's so reluctant to do it.
0: And when he goes, he's a jerk. Like yeah. he he does go to Mary's house and he's just kind of a, a, a creep and he does not read the room. He's just pissed
3: about his, his trip getting called off. Yeah. At one
1: point Mary yells up that to, to her mom. He's making violent love to me, mother, which is like, whoa, you can't say that to your mom in the 40s, even if it is a joke. Uh, but yeah, George, The this scene, this love scene confused me because George basically has a little bit of a quarter life crisis with what he's been confronted with and yells at her that I don't want to stay and I don't want to get married and blah, blah, blah. And then kind of they embrace and then he starts cry kissing her and then we go to their marriage their wedding (laughs) it's it's a little abrupt
0: yeah i think that it's weird because george is giving up all of his dreams of leaving and figures like i think he does love mary but he would totally have been fine with that not happening if he got to travel the world but i think he figures like well i'm gonna be here I might as well get married to her. Uh, And he's torn between the two. He also, there's another guy who is chasing after Mary and he calls and they have this phone conversation and George can't stop helping other people. Even when he's depressed and he's like in this really shitty state, um, his friend wants to open up a plastics factory. And George is like, Well, you know, we know the perfect building we will help you get it set up and we can give jobs to a bunch of people in town. And it is like one of these things like you see, we saw earlier where George gets it from, from his, from his dad wanting to help everybody. Um, But you see that George can't help, but be even despite his, his pissy mood, he's big hearted. Then I got, um,
1: it's, it's raining on their wedding day. Mm -hmm. And that's ironic. (laughs) Is it? Uh, (laughs) No. A little too ironic? Irony requires the opposite of a meaning. I I, I know what irony is. This is not it. I just can't define it. It's like pornography. Irony and satire and pornography. I know them when when I I see see them. them. Yeah. (laughs) Uh. Uh, They're just about to leave on their honeymoon with a shitload of money that they got as their wedding present, and then there's a run on the bank. And George gets out of the car, and everyone's outside. He lets everyone into the loan office, and this is where shit has hit the fan.
0: Yes. uh, Turns out they got married on the eve, or on the day of the Great Depression, (laughs) apparently.
1: Yeehaw, baby.
0: Yeah. Um, I did make a note here that... Uh, apparently, the building alone has a crow in the office that is like just flies around, and I just, want one now.
1: Just your classic desk raven, you know. <laughs> we also see that Uncle Billy has a pet squirrel later. So I either this man is so dirty that he just has wild animals following him, like Pit Pat, not Pit Pat. Ah, shit! The, the dirty blanket kid on Oh Charlie Brown. Pig pen. Pig pen, yeah. That's how I feel Uncle Billy is with all these animals, squirrels and crows and everything. Nobody acknowledges the fact that there's a desk crow. A right. raven, just hanging out. It's never talked about. It's just one of those like weird idiosyncrasies for this movie.
0: Um but Mary comes in and uh Mr. Potter has taken over the bank and called their loan in. Um and it, Then he's closed the bank for the next week. So he's got basically all the money in the town and everyone is worried how they're going to live for the next week. And when Mary comes in, she basically offers up their their honeymoon fund. And George starts passing it out to the people, asking them how much they need. And most people are nice and ask only for $20. One woman asks for $17.50 and George gives her a big kiss.
1: (laughs) I liked that. A little little kiss because bless her heart for asking for 50 cents as opposed to 20 bucks or whatever.
0: Yeah. And, uh, we get another view of, uh, Potter being a jerk because he's offering people, he's offering to buy their shares in the building and loan for 50 cents on the dollar. And it's a temporary fix and it's
3: a temporary problem. Like, it's not going to get them out of poverty, it's only going to keep them further in it. Yeah. Can't get that guy control. This is, I think this is why I got, like, the whole Scrooge,
1: Ebenezer Scrooge part mixed up with this movie. Because mm-hmm. Potter is very Scrooge-ish. You, you made up the word nebbish last episode, <laughs> so I'm making up the Scrooge-y. word scrooge Yeah. <laughs> put it Uh, on the record Okay. speaking of the record Mary has decided to buy the haunted house down the street Mm -hmm. uh, as things settle down she's using the record player to rotisserie her chicken in the
0: fireplace which is great, that's a 2 for 1 right there that
1: is, although it would have made me laugh if the music was playing really slow because the motor was struggling
0: Uh, I also thought that it'd be really hard because you have to listen to the same side of the record over and over again, because the rotisserie thing is on top of it. You can't flip it over. You'd have to, it's, it,
3: it, it's
1: almost like you should have two separate devices, one to play your music <laughs> and
0: one to cook and your one to
1: rotisserie your chicken. Maybe,
0: <laughs> maybe, <laughs> but it is really cute that, um, Bert and Ernie come together to hang up posters, uh, Outside of different outside the broken windows of different travel uh, spots and they sing something by the light of the moon or whatever outside the window at them. They serenade the the couple.
1: That that was sweet. And I was like, why are these two men so invested in making this couple happy that they're willing to stand out in the rain singing to them? Well, because I would I would not do that for you.
0: Because George is a better man than either one of us.
1: No, I would do that for you. Oh, I Sean. Uh, to to like save your relationship with your wife. I would get a waterproof boombox and do the say anything out in your lawn or whatever.
0: What if uh, I had just saved the whole town? Basically, that day. I mean that that
3: deserves it. Then I think. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And I'll go
1: out and collect some money and rob some gum machines and <laughs> give you, give you the money you deserve.
0: Uh, I've got to note, they go, uh, George starts building a little, um, like subdivision community kind of thing, uh, with nice homes for the townspeople so they don't have to pay rent to Mr. Potter. And so they go and they're helping one of the families move into the new house, uh, and all of the kids, Mr. Martini's kids get into his car and then the goat gets in and Donna Reed has like a baby in one arm and is holding the goat's horns with the other. I'm like, damn, Donna Reed can handle a goat.
1: <laughs> that goat seemed very nonplussed about getting in the backseat of a car. Just yep. like, oh, here we go again.
0: <laughs> yep. That's what I do. It's fine.
1: Um, so, yeah, Bailey Park is growing. Um. Harry Bailey has won the Medal of Honor. And, um, things are going well until George stupidly trusts Uncle Billy with all the money in cash in one single envelope. There's a lot of things I would not do in this scenario. Uh, (laughs) don't put all your eggs in one basket.
0: Literally. Uh, the... George's brother didn't just go to war; he went to war and saved a troop carrier full of soldiers, and that's what earned him the Congressional Medal of Honor. Um, and George and Mary now have—they got four kids, I think, at this point. Um, too many
3: to count. Yes, they—they have a whole passel of children. Uh, also, I have a note passel. here. Yeah, passel. What's that word? It means a lot. Spell it. P-A-S-S-E-L-L, I believe. That's a new one
0: on me. Put it up there next to Nebbish. It's
1: Probably because I don't have kids Just never <laughs> that were never interested in me.
0: Oh, it's, it's in a lot of uh, movies from the 30s. You, it's fine.
1: And no wonder I don't know it. <laughs> uh,
0: I've got a note that Mr. Potter has the fanciest wheelchair I've ever seen.
1: That thing is dope. Yep. <laughs> so cool. It looks comfy, too.
0: Yeah, it's like a it it's like the the throne from Game of Thrones or something. It's all yeah, carved yeah. and uh it, wherever he goes, he's a little king when he's walking like, around town.
1: Or like the wheelchair in Game of Thrones. Is there a wheelchair Wasn't in Game of Thrones? The the, the oh. dude in the not the middle it's like the Middle East yeah, yeah, yeah. clan that represented and it's the yeah. There's a king that, or a ruler over there. I think yep. he was in a ch- wheelchair. That sounds right. Game of Thrones, why did you turn out to be so bad? I would love to rewatch Game of Thrones right now if <laughs> it were good, but it, just not.
0: Just uh, not. So, this is when Uncle Billy misplaces the $8,000 bank deposit. Mr. Potter winds up with it. He, he does like a Drops it in his lap or something.
1: Billy, no, it's Billy has it folded up in the newspaper, and he's passing out newspapers because I think of Harry, oh, Harry's the uh, news yeah. that Harry won the Medal of Honor, and so then Potter realizes what he's done, and then makes sure that the old man takes off. And uh, yeah, so Was this it, is <laughs> my next note: is a squirrel comforts Billy.
0: My my next note is I really want an office crow.
1: <laughs> um so George, yeah, Billy goes and tells George they try to retrace all of his steps, but they can't find it, and
0: someone's going to jail.
3: George, this is
0: where it really started getting to me. It was I found it genuinely upsetting to see the level of his his grumpiness, his depression. I guess like he'd had this underlying sadness about him this whole time and kind of a little bit of bitterness, but it really spirals out of control and he like snaps at his family and at his children in this sequence. Uh, The only person who doesn't seem to annoy him is his youngest daughter, Zuzu, who is sick because she was out in the cold uh, and had a little flower that she won at school. Which is so sweet. Like, I don't care if you don't like kids. The fact that she just wants to stay up and look at her flower, I think is freaking adorable.
1: It is very sweet. Yes. I liked his line that, go to sleep and you can dream about your flower. Yes. That's a great, that's it, like a great dad bargaining chip. And he, he tells used,
0: her it'll, it'll be a whole garden. Because he's still yeah. got that, like, that poetic, romantic nature about him. Uh, and that he's moment, very gentle. Oh,
1: that moment when he sits down on the chair earlier Mm -hmm. and his son walks over and is fucking around with the mask or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then George just like grabs his son and just like yanks him in. And you just see the desperation on that hug. That really hurt. When we were talking about Jamie Stewart's performance, Mm -hmm. that moment in particular really stood out to me. Like, damn, that's a raw wound that
0: he's showing. It, uh reminds me of the moment in jaws at the dinner table with mm, with Brody yeah. and his son when they're yeah, yeah. when he's mimicking him and then he says give us a kiss like and it is it's a it is like a man who needs his offspring to comfort him and needs to know there's something good in the world and there's something there's a reason he's like fighting basically
1: so i'm curious if you're a dad i am Do you know how to spell frankincense without looking?
0: No, I do not. Go ask your mother.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I thought maybe becoming a father would imbue you with that power.
0: No. um, If anything, I'm dumber than I used to be. Uh, Trying to help children with their homework, it really exposes how much I did not pay attention in school.
1: Oh, I know. I I used to know so much geometry and... Trig and even some calculus, and now it would all look Latin to me if I were to see any of that. I also thought about like how hard would it be for me to write an essay right now, like a good old fashioned five paragraph essay. I don't have the the capacity for it anymore.
0: (laughs) Um, Even writing reviews is very difficult for me. I, I want to write, like, yeah, that was good. <laughs> I want that to be the whole review.
1: It's hard to put it in written words. I've recently started to just jot down little notes on Letterboxd, mm-hmm. and I'm not trying to write any kind of formal review or whatever, but it's a lot easier to convey how you feel about something in conversation with a friend yes. versus trying to define it on paper.
0: Um, have you? Did you become friends with Andrew? our previous guest uh, on Letterboxd? Uh, No, I did not. He reviews, he writes reviews for almost every movie he sees, and they're great. They're really well done. And even when we're doing the marathon, so we are, you know, our last marathon was like 19 movies over two days. I think he had a review for every single movie that we watch. Dang. Yeah, I'm like, how? I don't know how he does it. It's very impressive to me.
1: Some reviews I put work into, and some were like, after watching John Carpenter's The Ward, I just wrote, shit. <laughs> that's, that's valid. <laughs> um, so George, this is where George goes to Potter, right? Yep. George goes to Potter, completely sells himself out and tries to beg, basically. Uh, Potter tells him to get lost, essentially. George goes to the bar. Gets really drunk, crashes his car.
3: Potter uh, calls you think? the cops that, that on George. That bar
1: scene, man, that bar
3: scene was particularly sad mm-hmm. to me. Um, he's, like, like I said, he's so beat down by this point and pathetic and literally
0: through this little sequence, he cannot catch a break. It's kind of like He's had these big life events go against him, but here it goes from, like, they want him to leave the bar, so he's already, like, getting snippy with his friends. Mr. Martini, who owns the bar, who's been his, his well, customer.
1: He was talking a lot of shit to his kid's teacher, and who should, who should be at the bar but the teacher's husband? Like, talking about uh-huh. being short on luck. You, the guy you were talking his shit to on the phone, you end up in his presence like an hour later.
0: And you've both been drinking. Even better.
1: <laughs> yeah. Honestly, the way George was talking his shit to that teacher kind of deserved to get popped in the mouth.
0: Yeah, he... I think he's off the rails for He was mad because the kids
1: didn't wear a heavy jacket yes. when they walked home or whatever. And so he... That's no reason to scream at a teacher.
0: No. And the uh, the teacher's husband says, My wife slaves away teaching your stupid kids.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which I, my mom and sister um, have both been teachers mm-hmm. um, on and off. And teachers, they love their children, their students, but they also have deep resentment. Them yes. at the same time, which is hilarious. Teacher stories are always so funny.
0: Uh, so the guy, this that guy, Mr. Welch, pops him in the mouth. Uh, he crashes his car into a tree. The guy who owns the tree comes out and yells at him that his grandfather planted it. Uh, so it's like every single thing that he can do wrong or can go wrong is going wrong, and yeah. Then, just
1: uh just leave my car there by the way. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's that's parked.
0: And the door doesn't even close <laughs> on the car. He has to kick it shut to try to get it to shut. Uh and this is when he stumbles off towards the the bridge in town apparently. Uh and this little section here, the the wide shots with the snow falling, the shots of the the river down below like the water churning and little bits of ice floating in it and the snow going past. It made me feel cold like The Thing does, or like The Shining does. It gave me that same, that same sense. Uh, it was
1: surprisingly really well done, especially because a lot of times with movies from this era that were shot only on sound stages or whatever, just have that kind of play prop snow look. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this, this looked ge- legitimately cold.
0: It's, I just watched a movie from I want to say 46 um the other night called It Happened on 5th Street uh which is a, a cute little um uh Christmas time New Year's movie and every time the people were walking it was very clear they were on a treadmill with a rear projection going behind them like every
3: time they're walking down the street Yeah just like eyes wide shut Yep Eyes Wide Shut, by the way. Not good. Wow. It's not kinky enough. (laughs) Needs to be freakier?
1: I didn't learn anything. (laughs) I went into that movie hoping to learn something, and all I saw was, like, missionary sex and people going down on each other. And it's like, that's not kinky.
0: (laughs) Not kinky enough, says Sean.
1: So uh this part really does hurt though, as Jimmy Stewart's contemplating suicide and prays for God to show him the way and at last we get uh what's the angel's name Clarence
0: Clarence the clockmaker, Clarence oddbody
1: and Clarence shows up, and uh Clarence ends up jumping in instead, and Jimmy Stewart, as he did as a kid, jumps in and saves him, and they get pulled out by some dock worker or bridge maintenance guy and. The <laughs> scene, the scene with the bridge guy, just kind of sitting there listening to the two of them mm-hmm. as Clarence is explaining that he's an angel and he was sent down to be George's guardian. and Everything his reactions are pretty damn funny. He just takes off at one
0: point. It's that weird. Yes, uh, yeah, because Clarence keeps talking about uh I'm two hundred and ninety seven years old and three days or whatever. Like, and uh, you should read the new book that Mark Twain is writing. <laughs> i like that line
1: <laughs> that's a good line yeah um george wishes he has never been born clarence consults god and they decide okay that's what we're gonna do so after this point we now are going to walk around and see all the shit that happened and uh, i love that to show that the town has dived into a world of sin it's called pottersville now but it's uh it's just like jitterbug dance clubs all yes. over the place. It's like the most sinful thing in the world, the jitterbug.
0: <laughs> the uh, the movie house is now a burlesque house. I like that. Uh, and there's lots of neon. Wholesome towns don't have neon.
3: I don't know.
1: It's, it's like they're going for like a... Wouldn't it be awful if this place turned into New Orleans yeah. kind of vibe? <laughs> yes. Because it has that kind of like sexy yeah. kind of music going
0: and uh they go back to martini's bar only to find that's not mr martini's bar anymore it's nick's and the place is real rough uh and i love for some reason in the good timeline i don't think nick has a brooklyn accent <laughs> no, <laughs> but just... in the bad one he totally does <laughs> times are hard
1: for Nick, so he talks like this, and hey, we only serve hard drinks for guys who want to get drunk around here. Uh, Clarence asks for mulled wine with cinnamon and not too much nutmeg or cloves. Uh,
0: <laughs> the fact that um, Nick has got this accent and then says uh, that line about the hard drinks and then says, do you want me to show you my left fist for a convincer? <laughs> it's so good and slangy. I love,
1: I love threatening to beat a man because he didn't order a stiff enough drink
0: yes <laughs> that's a real man's place
1: uh, uh and then gower walks in uh, and old man gower well it turns out that uh you know, everything basically was the same for old man gower except for the fact that George wasn't there to stop him. So he ended up poisoning a kid and did 25 years in jail or something. And now he's just a local beggar. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is depressing.
0: Um, George has lost everything at this point. Like, uh, he's got no ID, no license, no wallet. Uh, Zuzu's petals from her flower are gone out of his pocket. Um, So he's got, like, no connection to anything. He also has no worries, no concerns, no obligations, which Clarence tells him, which is supposed to be what he thinks would happen if, you know, if he got, like, a new lease on life, essentially. Like, he wants to be, like, the the, uh, light-limbed, free-living guy, but he can't because he's inextricably tied to this town.
3: The
1: grass is always greener, man. Yes. I I swear it's if, if you're a bachelor, you're jealous of people who have more of a family life as I am. Mm -hmm. And I know many men who are married with kids who are very jealous of like my lonely existence. And it's just funny how like there never quite seems to be like that middle ground where you
0: can just be content with what you have. Uh, What I would really like is my current life, but also an apartment I could go to once in a while
1: yeah yeah but then that apartment you meet someone, you start a second <laughs> family you get you get a secret second house uh-huh. suddenly you're two guys at the same time, yeah, and then you're taking your kids ice skating, but you're also taking your other kids bowling and you bring your ice skates to the bowling alley and your bowling <laughs> shoes to the, the ice, ice rink, rink, and all your kids are disappointed
0: that sounds about right. <laughs> and knowing me, I really would. I'd be like, let's file more obligations on top. Uh, uh
1: so they go to the house, the old broken down house, which is again abandoned and broken down. And they're going to arrest uh Ernie alerts the cops, so the cops is there, and Bert and Ernie are going to arrest George, but Clarence shows up and distracts the cop, and lets him escape. I thought the effect of Clarence disappearing underneath the police officer Very impressive for the time.
3: Yeah, I definitely It seemed like
1: it was just like a hard cut or, you know, keep the cop in the same spot, keep the camera stationary. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really see a hard moment where like the vanishing happened, you know? Yeah. I didn't didn't see that jitter or that jolt.
0: Yeah, Bert's movements look smooth the whole time. There's no like jumpiness to it. Um, George's own mother doesn't know him. Uh, He finds out that the building and loan went under after his dad died and that Uncle Billy went crazy. Um, There's a throwaway line somewhere through here about Uncle Billy hasn't been the same since he lost his wife. And so it's like. That poor guy lost his wife, he loses his brother and then loses the family business. (laughs) And of course, like he winds up in the asylum like that. They got all kind of tracks.
3: Yeah,
1: that. Uncle Billy got dealt a sh- short straw in life.
0: Yeah. Uh, George runs to Bailey Field. Is it Bailey Field? The uh, the housing complex that he helped build? Uh, park, I think. Okay. Um, only to see that it never got built and it's a graveyard now. And the first grave he sees is his little brother, Harry's, who died at age nine because George wasn't there to dive in and save him dark shit man because george didn't save harry harry couldn't save the men on the transport ship so a a troop boat full of soldiers got kamikazied because of george bailey not wanting I'm, to live his life i'm giggling because you presented
1: this as the happy movie <laughs> the last 10 minutes of this movie like before it gets better like everything is in extraordinarily fucked
0: (laughs) yes the starting with uh when they lose the money and he starts yelling at people like i was getting teared up because that was so upsetting to me um just his behavior and knowing how everybody actually views him as like the town savior, basically. And he's snapping and he's bitter and I'm sorry, but um, I don't care where you go. Once again, Donna Reed is luminous. You would be a lucky man to be saddled with a young Donna Reed as your, as your bride.
2: Yeah,
1: but yeah, she's an old maid now. <laughs> that's true. I, I would, I would argue that in this reality, Mary's doing just fine. The fact that like she's not married in her thirties—that's like a great shame. But she seems she's a working woman at a library, mm-hmm. doing like what she wants to be. Like, she seems all right.
2: <laughs> yes,
0: I honestly, uh, I did not remember where he finds her, and when Clarence is like, "Oh, I'm not supposed to tell you where Mary is." I was like, oh, is it because Mary's doing fine? Like, did she marry Sam and everything went great for her? Because <laughs> that would be a knife in the gut if one person, the person that you love the most in the world, besides your children, uh, was actually doing great without you.
1: Nobody's doing great if they're married to Sam.
3: Aw, haw <laughs> You can't... Could,
1: I... I <laughs> you just made me so angry doing that just now. Because I, I guess I only have patience for about three hee-haws uh-huh. in a day. And we've passed the quota now. <laughs> we've passed the qu like what is that? Was that a colloquial greeting in the forties or is that a Sam specific
0: thing? I don't know. I it felt he does it from the beginning. Like yeah. and it's his way of greeting uh George and it just And he says it he sends it over Telegram, he sends a hee haw. Like what? <laughs> Is this madness? (laughs) Hee-haw. Stop.
2: Yes.
1: Your son has died of influenza. Stop. Stop. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Uh. So George George chases Mary into the bar or whatever crowded place, and, and the crowd all grabs him. He runs off. Punches the cop in the face, which prompts the cop to just start wildly shooting <laughs> in a crowd. That was With, my like, note. cars going behind him and uh-huh. people walking around. And this cop is just firing, like, blind shots. Uh. I mean, it's a pretty accurate representation, if I'm gonna say so.
0: <laughs> yeah. it's. Uh, but in this town, this town is basically like Mayberry, and Bert is over here just firing down Main Street. Uh. Ugh. <laughs> This is where George runs back to the bridge uh, where he first met Clarence and starts begging Clarence to give him back his life. Uh, He once again prays to God, you know, show me the way, what do you want me to do kind of thing. And once again, his wish is granted. Bert finds him on the bridge uh, and he finds Zuzu's petals in his pocket, which prove to him that he's, he's back in the regular world, the regular timeline.
1: Just tell you now, bud, the waterworks have have not <laughs> they might have started at this point, or they definitely were, but the end of this movie. Uh-huh. Emotional just like <laughs> complete waterworks going down the face. Glad I was watching it alone. I was a mess.
0: When uh I started this last night, I watched it in two sessions. I started it last night in bed after watching The Matrix. Uh, I got about,
1: a. That's as, a weird pairing. It is. I
0: know we do weird
1: pairings sometimes. That's, that's a, a weird really one. weird one.
0: Uh, I got about an hour into it, and then I was like, um, "I need to stop. Like, I need to turn off my brain and watch something else for a while." Then I woke up this morning and watched the last hour of it, and I'm glad that I did not watch it in bed because I would have woken Elizabeth up <laughs> because <laughs> I wasn't just crying at the end of this. It was like. <laughs> 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 it was. Rough. I definitely, I definitely
1: made one noise where I like, like inhaled. like did like a weird inhale. I'm like, oh, that wasn't good. <laughs> I think it uh-huh. was when he first, when he first saw Mary mm-hmm. as she comes oh. back. Oh, oh
0: man, man, man. Yeah, even him running through the town, him
1: running, him running down the street, yes. yelling "Merry Christmas!" to everyone, Mary, yelling "Merry Christmas!" Uh-huh. even to Mister Potter. Merry was Christmas, last- you
0: old building and loan. This oh. is the
1: last time we see Potter, right? Yeah. It's through this window? Yep.
0: Okay. And, um, and Potter says, uh, in Mary- or Happy New Year to you in jail. Because <laughs> that's where he thinks George is going to wind up. So, this ending, man. I,
1: I like you know, the bank mans there, the cops there, even the reporters there. How did... How did the reporter get access into George's living room to be taking photos of this
0: arrest? I guess Bert let him in because Mary's not home. Uh, the cop and the bank examiner are there. I'm betting Mr. Potter called the police or called the reporter to let them know what was going on so he could make George look bad. Because he hates the Bailey family. And yeah. he's Potter is the Grinch. And the Bailey family are the Who's, essentially.
3: Hey. <laughs> That's pretty good.
0: That's, you know what? That's pretty good. I didn't even realize it till just now.
1: And the Raven is the little dog. Perfect. Max. Sure. Yeah. Is that his name? Yes. I need to watch the cartoon again.
3: Yeah. Uh
0: and my note here is can't take notes crying too much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mary, so, yeah, as the oh god, Mary
1: starts bringing the town falcon, and everyone shows up giving their money, and it just like Martinis there, and he's joking about giving all the the jukebox money, and one lady says, "I've been saving this money for a divorce in case I ever get married." <laughs> yeah, I think is what she says. Yeah, yeah,
0: the ho- the uh, the housemaid from when he was a kid uh comes back because the Bailey family has been so good to her. Uh but yeah. So the... What
1: does uh what does the note say at the end? No man is a failure as long or as he, he has friends. friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah that that <laughs> um that broke me.
0: And I knew <laughs> Harry comes in at the very last second uh and I knew I know his line. I know that he says, Here's to my brother George, the richest man in town. And I know it. I know it's coming. I even had the subtitles on, so it appeared on the screen before he said it. And he says it. And the waterworks intensify. I'm like, he yeah. is the richest man in town. Oh <laughs> to my big brother George, the richest man in
1: town. <laughs> Yep, and then the bell moment.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> oh, God. It's so... I want to live in the world where you can see your love across the dance floor and you know it, and that everybody does think the rest of the townsfolk deserve... Uh, what does he say? Like, two nice rooms and a bathroom, something like that. Um, and that they come to help out everybody else around That's them. Right. like it's not just the christmas spirit i wish that that was just the reality that we lived in this it's this gonna be a hard weird
1: thing to convey i hope that death and like the transition to the presumed afterlife that i hope exists is like this where it's like we're just an angelic choir of friends singing old lang syne mm-hmm. um it's just a really beautiful moment and it hits me in the
0: heart very hard. And it really, it's all through this. Even this time I was ready for it to be like cheesy or feel like it was overrated. And then I watch it. I see his performance and I see this ending and it, it like, it's just a really good movie. <laughs> <laughs> when
1: his daughter says that the the line, mm-hmm. every time a bell rings, Angel gets, and he's just like,
3: "That's right, I, way to
1: go, Claire! It's just yeah, like, it's- "Oh, this should be cheesy, but it's not." Mm-hmm. It it, god damn it, it's really this movie's amazing. It's really good. Uh, that's definitely. The most emotional I've ever got talking to you on this <laughs> show. So let's uh, get away from
0: that. Uh, <sighs> what do you rate this movie? Ah, uh, okay. I've got to go to my letterbox here. I'm. Why? Why do you not know what? Why? Because you told me not to rate the movies before, and I haven't watched it since I've started. I uh, know,
1: but so you're not consulting your letterbox to see what you rate it.
0: No, I'm you. I'm logging it right now. It's in your head
1: right now. I'm, yes. I thought you were. You had to look at your letterbox to see how you felt about this movie.
0: No, I was making it official. It is five stars with a heart for me because this movie absolutely wrecked me. I think it's beautiful. And there are so many techniques in it that like filmmaking wise that I think are really solid. And the way the narrative moves through his whole life is just so efficiently done even for, what is it, two, two hours, ten, something like that, uh, it felt much shorter to me.
1: I think the only thing that would have detracted this would have been the runtime for me, mm-hmm. but it actually does feel well-validated, especially when all of these characters come back at the end and you're paid dividends on every single little side story mm-hmm. that you have as an audience. It like it multiplies the punch at the end of this movie. Um Yeah, our our conversation here bumped it up. It it, it, it was a four and a half, but it it's a five for me. The, just the fact that it's it's not only a Christmas movie, but it's it's a movie about mental health and um maybe forgetting to be grateful for the things that you have or the people around you or losing your focus and getting too fixated on work or finances or addiction or whatever. Um, It's a really, really strong movie about knocking yourself back down to kind of, you know, to even and realizing that like friends and loved ones and family, it's what matters. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's amazing. It, it, it's a five star, the technique, the
3: performances, like you said, the camera work is tough. It's, it's all top notch. It's uh,
0: there's a reason it's on, I mean, it got nominated for awards and it's been on so many like best of lists and, um, Potter, uh, I know he was, I don't remember which place he was, but on the, like the AFI lists they do, he's one of the top 10 villains Um, yeah, he's one of the only villains in a code era film who gets away with robbery. Uh, which is interesting because he steals that $8,000 from uncle Billy. He does not give it back. Uh, and according to the code that criminals were supposed to be punished by the end of the picture. Um, that was a big part of it. And he gets away scot-free. Yeah. he's, he's never brought down even we're just shown that the the who's down in whoville basically have a great life without him
1: i'm very glad that the grinch did not show up as he does in the grinch yes here in this last that would have been a bridge too far i
0: think it's it's enough that the bank examiner is there i i did like that those those guys got into it yes yeah He's even the bank examiner who's been, he's just been standoffish. He wasn't a jerk. He's just a guy doing his job. Uh, but even the um, Violet, the, the woman who's been flirting with George all through his life, we see in the bad timeline that she's getting dragged out of a bar um, and she's like down on her luck. At one point, George lends her money so she can get away to New York. And at the end she decides to stay in town and give the money back to the community. And I like even that thread is followed up on and is very satisfying.
3: Yeah. It it's an ensemble movie that completely warrants each of the ensemble characters. <sighs> so yep. Yeah, fantastic film. Let's take a break and then do the next one. We need a better transition than that. Okay,
1: you do one then. Okay. Well, viewers, we just experienced a black and white Christmas. Now it's time for a (laughs) black Christmas. (laughs) Alright, we're going to be talking about Black Christmas from 1974, not the mid-2000s ones. Not the 2019 one. 74. Uh, this is directed by Bob Clark, written by A. Roy Moore, not The Roy Moore. Don't get that <laughs> confused. And Bob Clark, Christmas master that he is, followed this movie up nine years later with A Christmas Story. This man is a Christmas genius. Josh, what's your history with this?
0: Um, This was one I had not seen until... um Just a few years ago, it's been fairly recent in my uh, discoveries that I think it kind of has gained more prominence in the last few years as it's being appreciated as like Halloween was the first slasher. But really, it was kind of this one. Uh,
3: Yeah. Um, This. Might be my favorite slasher. Yeah. It's up there. I'm not huge. I, I like slashers, but I
1: rarely think they're great or any. I genuinely think this movie is excellent. Yes. this movie this movie scares me in the way that like when we watched Session Nine, and I would get tingles down my spine or goosebumps running down my arms at just how uncanny or creepy certain things happening are and this movie does that to me a lot
3: uh i'm
0: sure we'll get into it a little bit but the the phone calls that get repeated throughout the the movie they're They're the best they're genuinely upsetting they are like it's not like even freddie like freddie he's there and i'm kind of like yeah maybe afterwards like he can't you kind of ruminate on the idea and then you dream about it and it's scary. This while you're watching it is off putting almost in that David Lynch kind of way where I'm like, I'm uncomfortable with this uh right now. Like I want to crawl out of my skin a little bit. I don't like it. It's great. Do you know who the voice is on the phone?
1: Who's the performer? Because it Whoever is doing those voices, it sounds I mean it's a performance, but it's like not. I like that you mentioned Freddy Krueger, because, like, Freddy's always talking like this and gonna scare you and fuck you and blah blah blah. This guy is just losing his fucking mind to the point where he's making, like, child noises and female characters and screaming about the baby and just making noises too it's not even the words it's it's everything that's around Mm -hmm. it just it's maniacal i i don't know it's one of the like strongest or like one of the most intense depictions of like crazed villain i've seen or heard in the movie
0: yeah it is uh somebody who is completely unhinged and seems more animal than human. Maybe like they do not seem in touch with humanity at all. It's just a incredibly crazed performance. And the way that Bob Clark shoots the POVs from the killer's perspective. um, I don't know if you know, POV means point of view, Uh, (laughs) but the way that he shoots the killer POV shots uh, goes right along with the voice. Like, it's that ultra-wide lens, everything is swinging around wildly, and it's just, it's so off-putting.
1: This movie, I mean, Bob Clark's genius, I'd say, starts right off the bat when, before, before we even get a POV shot, the camera already feels like a stalker. Because the camera is just sitting outside of this sorority house, and we just feel voyeuristic, as we're just kind of looking in this thing. And then we switch over to the POV shot and we get the breathing. It just, the way, yeah, the camera movement combined with that soundtrack mm-hmm. of the sound of design of breathing. It's creepy as all hell, man.
0: Uh, back up a second, I know we're literally two seconds into the film. Back up one second. I love the title font, the title card, uh, and the um the actors credits that pop up over yeah. that shot of the sorority house it's so cool like it's almost this throwback kind of old english looking script that says black christmas and it's just
3: uh it's it's singular i think
1: yeah the the these shots also they set up the ending mhm and they it ugh, the the way that this movie starts and ends Especially the ending, we'll get into it, but fuck, it's so good. Mm -hmm. So good. So we're in the killer's point of view, or someone's point of view, walking around the house, climbing up a trellis into the attic, and this is where we're now going to go and meet some of the sorority sisters. And our main character in this movie is Jess, played by...
0: Olivia Hussey.
1: Is she English, or is this a fake accent? She is English. Um... Okay. Cause her accent seems somehow fake in this. I don't know. Did, did you get that feeling? It feels very like a stage performer. Is very proper English?
0: Yes, it almost doesn't feel English. Like I was having a hard time figuring out what it was, actually, for a while. Um She What do you did,
1: think of, oh sorry, go ahead.
0: I was gonna say, did you ever see the um uh, Franco Zeffirelli's uh, Romeo and Juliet from 1968.
1: No, the only Romeo and Juliet I've seen
0: is from the 90s. Romeo plus Juliet? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Equals fun. <laughs> um, that was, uh, and still is, like, well, probably the only other thing I've seen her in. Um, but we watched that in my high school English class, my honors English class. And I think I might've told the story before. I like,
1: I like that you snuck in, that you were in honors It was honors English. <laughs> you, you couldn't leave English class alone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and my teacher, who was a fantastic, interesting dude, um, who lived on a commune for a while. Like he also taught at the local college. He's very cool. Uh, she was showing this to us and then hastily turned the the, um, TV around on one of those wheeled carts because there's a point where Olivia Hussey exposes her breasts in the film and we you know we weren't allowed to see that and I just remember like him panicking turning the thing around and then his face like beat red as he turned it back around because he was the only one who had witnessed this
1: I think we might need to cover that movie
0: <laughs> It it is very good <laughs>
1: I remember in Spanish class, my teacher showed us the, the classic Selma Hayek, Matthew Perry romantic comedy, Fools Rush In. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because that was going to teach us Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> and she had to, she like threw her body in front of the TV as she fast forwarded through their one sex scene. And oh. was, you don't see any humping or anything. Yeah. Some light petting at best.
0: Very PG thirteen. Definitely,
1: like not a not a desperado esque scene. Uh, what do you think of Jess's sweater?
0: <sighs> I'm obsessed with this sweater. There's a woman that I follow on Twitter who uh, got it remanufactured, and so
1: it's it's like three fingers held out to make two triangles. Or what? What is it? It's just big hands, like it's big hands making like. Triangle, but it looks like you're, it's like a, a witch's curse. I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's weird though.
3: Um,
0: uh, I don't. I don't know. It's just hands. I think it's a great uh, Olivia Hussey's look in this party scene. So she's got this really crazy sweater on. Uh, she's wearing yellow pants and a yellow shirt underneath it. Uh, it's just great. Like and her hair the way like it's hanging she's super 70s very stylish she's the most put together person at the at the party uh and i think it's it's great
3: so we're
1: also introduced to Phil who is the woman who wears the glasses and she's kind of like the reliable friend in this movie and then we got Barb who is Barb's on her own planet, man. <laughs> Barb Barb's a wild card that we will we'll have to cover Barb as we go through this movie. And then um basically the, uh, we got the house mom, I don't remember her name.
0: Uh Mrs. Mack.
1: And then um what's the girl's name who disappears? That's the Claire. First? Claire. And Claire's kind of the young one. Uh yeah.
3: Barb
0: so, so Barb is played by Margot Kidder.
1: Um, oh, I've seen
3: her in stuff. What have I seen her in? Have you seen her in perhaps Superman? No. Nope. No, really?
0: Uh, I've
1: seen su- Superman 2? Su- the only Superman, Superman 3. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Superman the 4 only... The quest for peace.
1: <laughs> You're having fun, aren't you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> She's Lois
3: Lane.
1: Right. The only Superman-related thing I've ever seen. Oh, she's in Amityville Horror. Yes, she is. Is um, uh, what was the movie where it's about the guy who played Superman, and it's like Ben Affleck oh, movie? It's uh, like Hollywoodland. Completely...
2: Yeah,
3: yep.
1: man, that movie vanished into the ether. It's like it was erased from people's memories. Yes. I think I watched that because was Adrian
0: Brody in that movie? I literally do not remember. I watched <laughs> that movie 15 years ago and never thought about it again.
1: So that's what I say. It's like one of the least memorable pieces of art to ever exist. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Hollywood Land. It's also a bad title.
3: Uh, Margot Kidder was also in Rob Zombie's Halloween uh, 2. That, well,
1: I've tried, I, I might have forgotten about Hollywoodland, I've actively tried to
3: forget <laughs>
2: Rob, <laughs> Rob Zombie's Halloween, Halloween series.
1: Uh, so, the sorority girl's call, and this is where we're introduced
3: to, I don't know, what do you want to call this guy? Well, he's, he's Billy. Uh, yeah, so,
1: this, they get a call from Billy and they're all listening. And he's threatening, he uses the C word a lot, which is surprising, <laughs> and threatening all sorts of sexual violence and terrible things, and Barb is apparently from New York City or somewhere, where she doesn't take it seriously. They hang up the phone, and then Barb says a truly heinous thing, which is, uh, you can't, you can't sexually assault a townie. Yes. The... Uh, yeah yeah she's she's a piece of shit from start to finish in this movie. She's a complete alcoholic um i i I don't even know what to what do you think of barbara josh uh i think do, do you like her
0: I do because I think margot Kidder gives you enough that she does seem um wounded underneath her manic exterior uh but She's uh, we talked in another episode right about um, I think an American movie when uh, Mark gets drunk and it's like he would be too much to handle like you don't want to be around that kind of drunk. I think that's what Barb is. And she is drunk the majority of the time.
1: Uh, Yes, I totally agree with you. And the performance. I'm not saying the performance is bad. I think Margot Kidder is pretty great in this movie. It's just the volatility of mm-hmm. this character is... I don't want any part of this lifestyle or people like this, you know?
0: Yep. I know, exactly. It's she. She makes me not as uncomfortable as the killer, but if I was in a social setting with her, I would be, like, chewing my fingernails off trying to get away.
1: <laughs> That's... That would be like, do you and your wife have some kind of secret signal to get you out of bad conversations at parties or social events?
0: Uh, we've we've done that a couple times. Like, um, so I don't know if I've talked about like Elizabeth is uh, does improv. And so we go to this the local club where she does improv a lot. And so afterwards, when people are hanging out, we kind of have a like, oh, hey, we got to go kind of signal of like, OK, you know. We'll do or our eyes at each other. Or like you squeeze the other person's hand real hard to like get the hell out of here. Let's go grab a burger.
1: Oh, I love the let's get the hell out of here hand squeeze. Yes. That's a good squeeze because you know it's like, oh thank God we can leave this place you know? <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: Cause I'm I'm
1: usually the one that wants to leave first. So if somebody else wants to leave before I do, that's beautiful for me. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> uh, so poor poor Claire. Uh gets offended by barb mm-hmm. obviously as you should and goes upstairs to a room thinks she hears the cla- the cat named claude in her closet but it's billy and billy stra- suffocates her with a plastic bag and the i love the i think the soundtrack is really really smart for this movie because mm-hmm. it sounds like somebody opened a piano and is just scraping and banging on like the piano strings to get these big, haunted, echoing sounds for some of the sound design. But as we move through the movie and Peter, the pianist, mm-hmm. starts to mentally dismantle himself, these broken piano string songs, I think, are like a, a perfect use of it's, it's a great combination of that character and the soundtrack.
0: So I read that the composer actually. Um, did use prepared pianos in the soundtrack where he was like tying things to the piano strings and striking the strings up in the body of the piano uh, to make them resonate more and to give them the weird, like haunted sounds.
1: It's great. Yeah. I I, I love it. I so much like similar with session nine. Sometimes I think if you try to have creepy music, it can undersell a moment. But if you just have creepy sound design, Mm -hmm. it can really ratchet the tension up.
3: Uh,
0: So the logistics of this. And I mean, this isn't like spoiling the rest of the movie, because right from the beginning, Billy spends most of the movie in the attic. Right now, he while the party is happening downstairs, he drags Claire's body up into the attic. From her room. So nobody knows where she goes.
1: Billy's strong like a cheetah carrying an antelope up into a tree. Mm-hmm.
0: It's, it's horrifying to me.
1: Uh, oh, it's like a spider coming out of your ceiling to just grab one of your friends and then like pull them up into its web. And your friend is suddenly vanished. And in your own house. That's yes. Fucking scary.
0: And the way that Bob Clark shoots that the portal up into the attic it's like a black hole. Like it is every time you see it, you see like a little bit of the ladder and then you see the hole itself and it's just darkness beyond it. And this movie kind of like the shining, I never get a grasp on the layout of the house. It always Mm. feels, but not in a bad way. Like it always feels weird and dangerous to me. Like Billy could be hiding anywhere. And especially uh, as we get towards the end i mean most of the action happens in this house but we don't follow people from room to room it's all like cut off separately and it's really effective when there's kind of the chase at the end and you don't know where
3: anybody is that i like that the idea that using a lack of knowledge of geography for
1: the audience as a means to then scare you once you're into a chase sequence because oftentimes, I, we talked about it with that movie Free Fire, but uh, movies, geography, and not knowing where characters are, the layout of a building, mm-hmm. can be extremely detrimental to a movie.
0: Yes. Um, the other one that does this uh, makes me think of Alien. When you get into the end of Alien, and you feel like you had a good grasp on where things are in the ship, and then Ridley Scott had them repaint the sets. So they would look worse in the dark. So they would look like black with like little flecks of glitter and stuff in them. Hmm. Instead of just darkening the set, like he made them repaint them and everything is off putting. Yeah. Those
1: color strobes Mm -hmm. at the end of Alien. Yep. So disorienting. So good. Ah, so good. Um, House mom is left alone, where she pulls out the encyclopedia, B, B for booze. Dude,
3: uh,
1: uh, I texted Josh as I was watching it just, this lady's alcohol consumption is upsetting. <laughs> uh, uh, just it's how she drinks it, it's the fact that it's it, it's bur- it's like bourbon or some whiskey kind, yeah. or something. And just like, taking pulls off of these flasks and also were you screaming at your tv like just buy a fifth lady you are wasting so much money on these (laughs) miniature flasks just get a bigger bottle
0: she how many people do you think carve out the inside of books to hide a flask in
1: i would know i want to now (laughs) (laughs) i have not but i do now uh um peter calls and jess's boyfriend phil answers the phone I like this part because Jess um, Phil says Jess, it's for you. It's him, which right off the bat, this movie's kind of introducing the idea: is Peter is not is Peter not the killer? Right, and so that that ambiguous language right there is a nice little tip of the hat.
0: Uh, this is where you really get to see Jess's outfit as well. Um, oh, and I was going to say earlier, the there's a woman on Twitter who got this shirt, that sweater remanufactured and sold a limited run of them um and so the uh filmmaker axel carolyn uh who did the manor this year went to the new bev uh like a couple nights ago to watch black christmas in the same outfit as jess is wearing in this because she bought one of those sweaters um and then uh because oh brian fuller who was the showrunner for hannibal uh was a dude wearing the same outfit, and they both looked fantastic in it. It made, nice. me, it made me wish that I could pull, pull that sweater off, but I don't think I could. I think I'd look too bunchy in the middle.
1: No, you could pull it off. You think so? Yeah, you have the figure for it. Oh, thanks. Those slim hips. You could wear <laughs> that sweater.
0: Uh, I like at the end of this phone call, Peter says, I love you, and Jess says, I
3: know.
1: Ooh, I <laughs> felt that but <laughs> yeah. i felt that oh my god um also i've been the one who responds i know so Ooh. I, I, <laughs> oof. it's you know it's really really awkward when somebody says they love you and you're not there
0: yeah R- it, really awkward it's uh i I think i've gone with a thank you before Ooh, thank you's not good no it's not thank you's not good no but you don't know what else to say.
1: I usually would just respond, Oh god, it's making me cringe. Something like I care a lot about you. Ooh,
2: ooh. <laughs> ah,
0: Oh that hurt or me.
1: I'm or like I'm falling for you with okay. Oh God. Oh this is hurting my heart just saying these <laughs> words again. Oh I've only had honestly like two relationships that i would deem like actual relationships in my life and both of them were like it turned into like i was emotionally shut down and then i had to then try to figure that one out when they're all in and i am not and oh both times was really awkward and i regret both times now after being single for so many years that i should have probably held on to
3: what i had
0: Ooh. Now, what's worse, that last sentence or saying uh, "I care for you too"?
1: What All causes right, well, that more last sentence, body cringe? That last sentence. My last girlfriend had a dream of moving to New York City, mm-hmm. and she was five or six years younger than I was, so she was like twenty-three at the time, and so that's when you move to big cities, and I wasn't gonna be the guy that like talked her out of it, so that way, like. I don't know. I felt like if she didn't go pursue her dream, it would have been a big mistake. Mm-hmm. And she would have resented me. And so I encouraged her to, to go. Oof. But it hurts. She's probably going to get married soon to this dude. <laughs> so, oh, that's, that's all right, man. It's all right.
0: It feels like there's at least a short film in that.
1: Well, yeah, I was a baker and she was a pastry chef. So right there you have like a complete
3: clashing of... Yeah. Yeah. It'd be a good little short film. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, This
0: is where (laughs) the house mother drinks the booze out of the back of the toilet.
1: I know back of the toilet water's clean. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I know like in a storm environment or like a hurricane or whatever like back of the toilet could save your life as being potable water. I don't like this one bit. This string flask bottle that she pulls up, there's like
0: I don't like it. The, I don't You can see that the label has like come off and then resettled Elsewhere on the bottle, like it slid up because the, it was wet and soggy, also the toilet is gross i don't there's it's like it's, it's a sorority toilet there's it's no just, food or drink in the bathroom. I don't like that like no
1: no 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 i i I'm not even crazy about having toothbrushes in there,
0: to <laughs> yes, that's when she took that swig of that and then she washes her mouth out with it. And spits and then takes another drink. Uh, It really made me gag. It was
2: pretty nasty.
1: Mr. Harrison has showed up at the house. He was there to pick up his daughter Claire, who is dead, but they don't know that. And uh, so he's looking in her room. And the look he gives the house lady when he sees the Express Yourself poster. Mm -hmm. I thought the reveal of that poster of the old, it's the nine portraits of the old woman sitting there. And then the ninth portrait is her flipping the camera off. Yes. The way it was revealed, it was like, that was a Mm punchline. I laughed.
0: (laughs) I thought it was funny. And this is also the movie, I think, where I noticed that the editing and camera in this movie, like, make a whole lot of punchlines. Right before he shows up, Jess goes and knocks on Claire's door. And there's a cut as Jess knocks on the door in a rhythm and then moves out of the frame she's like kind of shrugs and walks away from the door as soon as she leaves the frame there's a cut and claire's body enters the frame moving in the opposite direction and she's got the plastic bag over her face and she's in a rocking chair that billy is like pushing back and forth and it's so like that cut is just so disturbing and there's uh one of those It sounds like he dropped some Super balls in the piano, kind of a musical sting happening. And it really is off-putting. It's just like, that's the icing on top.
1: There's a really also excellent edit later that I spotted that added to how creepy the movie was. It's the... There's a missing young girl. Mm-hmm. later on in the movie, and when they find her, the mom shows up. Oh, yes. And right as the mom is about to just scream in grief, they cut the sound of the phone ringing uh-huh. over. Man, that that sent a little chill down my spine. That was a fucking excellent moment that was made in the edit.
0: Yeah, that's, I wondered how much of this was planned because there's a lot of those really tight edits, like matching cuts uh, and stuff like that. I'm like, they Bob Clark had to be planning this ahead of time. I don't think they could have found all this. It's very, it's almost Hitchcockian how tightly it's constructed.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a a pretty funny joke right after this where house mom's sitting on the stairs and she's looking for Claude and she calls Claude a prick right as Mr. Harrison's head pops up from out of frame up the stairs Mm -hmm. and just... Gives her the longest side-eye, and then she flips him off. There's there's a lot of real funny stuff like that in this.
0: Um, This is when we find out that Jess has big news for her boyfriend,
3: Peter. Yeah. She's pregnant. Uh, yeah. And she doesn't know if she wants to keep it. And Peter starts getting
0: real possessive and creepy. Yeah, guess who doesn't like that news? <laughs> oh, it's it makes me so uncomfortable he's uh he's weird like peter's Dalla, who plays peter is, i know him from uh 2001 like he played the main astronaut in 2001
1: really i yes. did not recognize him that's cool the,
0: but he's got this um kind of vacant look about him like, it really worked. Kubrick really used it, and I think Bob Clark really uses it too, that you cannot read what's going on inside of him. When he is acting, it's not a lot of, like, real emotive acting. He seems kind of blank and creepy and weird. And I think that that definitely plays into the the red herring of, uh, is Peter the one doing all this or any of this? throughout this movie, and I don't know how somebody would hook up with that guy. He's he's weird.
1: Yeah, he just has, like, sociopathic vibes mm-hmm. that it's like, Barb, you can't trust when she's drunk. Peter, I feel like you can't trust ever.
0: <laughs> uh, he does. He reminds me of um, Christian Bale in American Psycho. That kind yeah. of that's what he puts yeah. off a little bit.
1: Uh, uh, my next note is there's there's a party going on at the house.
0: I think they're at the fraternity house. Uh, Their are okay, well, brother fraternity.
1: Well, is this where Barb is getting a kid drunk?
0: Uh, yes, there's it intercuts between this party and Claire's father looking around the house for her. So like this really full room with all these kids to this super empty rooms and him just peering into them, which is, I think it's really excellently done. Um, this is the first time I've seen a Santa swear at kids. <laughs> I think probably Which, one of the earliest uses of a dirty
3: santa. Uh,
1: and it just knowing what Bob Clark does in nine years with Santa yes. again at that scene in the mall. yep, the guy is like the John Carpenter of Christmas. he's <laughs> <laughs> just like so nihilistic
0: about this, yes, uh. The there's a shot when Claire's dad uh, leaves with Mrs. Mac. I think they're going to go over to the party or whatever to try to see if Claire's there. Um, And they're leaving the, the sorority house and the shot is zoomed in to start with. And you don't, you don't know that. And then it pulls back to reveal that you're looking through the attic window. So Claire's dad is in the background and Claire is in the foreground Just her body, her decomposing body is in the foreground. And it's chilling. Like, you don't see usage of someone's body like that in most other slashers. It doesn't give you, like, this emotional hit of, here's your daughter, here's your little girl that you're looking for and you're so worried about. They they don't do that. That's this is just excellent.
1: Loved this shot. It reminded me of the beginning of Scream, almost. Oh, yes. Where it's like, you're so close to your parental salvation, but you didn't make it.
2: Yes.
3: Oh, God. That one's heartbreaking, too.
1: Yeah. But that just... The choice to put us in that attic and not tell us that we're in the attic... hmm <laughs> Just adds such, like, a... A gross, sick feeling being an audience member hanging out up there in Billy's playroom and we didn't even
0: realize it. It gives me Texas Chainsaw vibes because I think the thing about the first Texas Chainsaw is that you don't feel safe with Toby Hooper as the director. Like, the way that he constructs that film, I don't know whose hands I'm in and I don't know how far he's going to go.
1: I really need to give that movie another shot. I, I like it, but I'm so turned off by how sweaty and dirty and gross everything is <laughs> that I just don't <laughs> want to go back to it. Uh-huh. It's not that I don't like the movie or anything, it's just I'm never in the mood to put myself in, like, sticky, hot, orange, Texas, horror house weather. You yeah, know? I can see that. Give uh- me, like, a nice, ravenous, cold mountain kind of thing. <laughs> just sweaty, sticky dirtiness. Ugh.
0: Um, in the Jess and Peter scene, because all these are intercut back and forth, um, when she goes to leave him behind, he's, they do this huge wide shot from across this big room and Peter's back at the piano and she walks clear up. And so it's like a close up on her and the camera and he's really small in the background and it's like she delivers some kind of kiss offline to him and then leaves the frame and he's just this tiny little person way in the back. And I'm like, that was really well done. Really, like, dynamically staged. Um, Yeah, because all this, like I said, it intercuts. Um, Then I had Barb getting the kid drunk. It's a split diopter shot with uh, Claire's dad.
1: So that's where you have two fields of focus? Yes. I remember the first time I ever saw that. Have you seen the Robert Redford movie, The Castle? The Last Castle? No, the military prison one. Yeah, yeah, it's with Gandolfini. I remember that was just the first time that I ever saw those shots where you'd have Gandolfini in like a close-up and Redford in the background, and there would be this this line in the middle of the
3: shot, just this blur line, and I'd never seen anything like it before. Um, the that film was shot at a a uh, run down prison here in town. Really? Yep. I liked that movie when I was 19 or whenever it came out. I I
1: it's probably pretty cheese balls. Also, thinking back on it, there's some dumb shit, mm-hmm. but I liked it. I don't have very much of a connection with Robert Redford.
0: Uh, see, um Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is one of my favorite movies.
1: Saw it in high school, haven't seen it since.
3: Um, have we talked about FlickChart?
1: I don't need to know how often you masturbate. <laughs> no,
3: that's <flick> chat. <laughs> What's FlickChart?
0: FlickChart is, um, it was around before Letterboxd, or I was aware of it before Letterboxd. Uh, and it's a, a website where they give you two movies and you just pick between them. Over and over and over again, when I okay. had a, when I had a boring desk job where most of my job was waiting for the phone to ring, this I played this all the time. And eventually, after so many rankings, it starts putting your your favorite movies in order.
3: Oh, like that's it, cool! Yeah,
0: it comes up with like the algorithm of what movies you pick over what other movies. And
1: that was at the top, Butch Cassidy.
0: Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, I think, uh, is my number one. And let's see, Seven Samurai, Jaws, Psycho, and Fargo are my top five.
1: I have not seen
3: Seven Samurai. Well, it's in my to top my five. My great shame. Also, number six, All That Jazz. I've seen that movie. What? Have I seen that movie? I don't think you've seen that movie with Roy Scheider. Uh
1: no, I have not seen that okay. movie. You know why? Did jazz in the title. I
0: know. <laughs> That's just... That's, it it took uh like <laughs> what three to four years for me to get Elizabeth to watch it. Uh, yeah. and then when she finally did, she was like, Thank you for showing me that movie. It was not I'm... what she was expecting.
1: I guarantee you like five minutes into it, I'd be like, oh, I'm really glad I'm watching this. <laughs> yes. But do you know how much strength it takes to push the play button on some of the movies that I watch?
0: Oh, when somebody gives you like a serious movie recommendation, it's the worst burden. <laughs> Ugh.
1: Stop telling me to watch licorice pizza, asshole.
0: <laughs> it's like uh it's like somebody gave you a pet that you have to take care of now.
1: <laughs> um my next note is them reporting the phone calls uh,
3: to the police. Um, yes, they go to the the police station, and Barb mm.
0: cannot help but fuck with the policeman.
1: Yeah, like tells him that the phone number starts with Falacio five seven nine eight. Yes, it's uh, fellatio- Two o eight eight o. What? Felatio. It's a it's a new exchange. Fe. It's a
2: new one
1: on me. Again, I still don't understand. Is this an East Coast thing? Like in Seinfeld, they would say, "What's my number?" Klondike five three seven eight two. Never once in my life has anybody ever used letters in a phone number, but I see it in movies and TV all the
0: time. Um, I think it was more like an old-timey thing.
2: Hmm. Uh,
3: but it would, you know, it's just the first two numbers. I know, but, so, I don't know. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. Uh, Especially the
0: idea that they're there to get help and she is giving him...
3: Um, I'm guessing that's a bogus number. Like, she just says fellatio to be funny, right? Uh, oh,
1: that's interesting. If she gave him a real number, and it just so happened that...
0: Yeah,
3: yeah, does it work out? Like, what is it, three... That would be three-three. Yeah. Three-three-five? Maybe. Because Klondike five is five-five-five, right? Yeah. Well...
1: Next, we I guess this is another point where I'm like I couldn't tell if this piano recital that Peter has was bad or not. I, I know. Because it's like, I don't know if like these are the kind of music snobs where it's like, oh, this is so technical and like advanced and broken down that I love it because it sounds like shit Right, <laughs> I, I couldn't tell if they were into it or not at first
0: yeah he's the piece he's playing is kind of avant-garde sounding anyway so it's and he's not screwing it up badly enough that he's like tripping over his fingers and so it is hard to tell um, but I think by his reaction we can tell that it did not go well or they did not receive it well
3: um we're gonna go back to
1: the police station, I think. Right with John yes. Saxon introduced. <laughs> I so there's another missing girl, uh, some girl who was walking home from school. She was missing, and the mother tells John Saxon. But I was voice texting, so I I wanted to write John Saxon, the cop. Okay. And I I got John Saxon, the cup.
0: Saxon <laughs> <in> the cup. <laughs> <laughs> i uh, I had John Saxon exclamation point as Lieutenant Fuller
1: like I said, man, guys, just a warm comfort blanket,
0: yeah, I'm very happy when he shows up here uh, uh,
1: Jess goes to the hockey rink to find Claire's boyfriend to see if she's seen him- mm-hmm. or and then so he goes to the station with them, and he's wearing the biggest fur jacket in the world. It reminds me of the Seinfeld episode where Elaine's boyfriend Putty is wearing a fur jacket. Yes. And she says he looks like Dr. Zeus and she <laughs> throws <laughs> it out the window at the party. <laughs>
0: uh, is this where um, we see the aftermath of Peter's
3: recital and he smashes the piano? Um, I'm not sure if it's Yeah, It might be, yeah. Because
1: Oh, it's well, we first have Barb talking about turtles that have sex for three days. Oh yes. To Claire's dad to basically try to comfort him that her daughter her daughter his daughter's probably just off fucking some dude for 72 straight
0: hours. Barb in this sequence, she like she just lashes out at everybody. She yells at Mrs. Mack. She's mean to um Oh, Andrea Martin, Phil. Uh Phyllis. Uh, and she's just a jerk.
3: Yeah,
1: she's a gigantic asshole, this lady. <laughs> and now we get Peter back, uh, smashing the piano with, and uh, this was where I was like, this sounds exactly like the soundtrack. <laughs> the sound of him destroying
0: this piano. Um, I made a note that in a film this realistic, like this grounded, someone breaking a piano like that hurts my heart. Like, cause it feels so real. And like, I'm like, that's an actual piano. It's not some fantastic thing. You know, I wouldn't watch the matrix. They they're blowing up helicopters and shit. Like I don't care. No one actually got hurt on that. This piano was a real piano and it makes me sad.
1: So how do you feel? Spoilers for the hateful eight. It's not a huge spoiler, but How do you feel about that scene in that movie when Kurt Russell didn't smash the prop guitar, but the real smash like an ancient piece of history?
0: Yes, (laughs) Uh, that was very big news here in Nashville because of the Martin company. Yeah,
1: I know. But to to, like cling to things like that, everything's going to dust. It it doesn't matter. It, you know, like, I know it's cool to have like a guitar that's 180 years old or whatever, but it's not going to last. Nothing's going to last. It's shit's all going to get broken down and buried eventually. So why not let Kurt Russell smash the fuck out of
0: it? Well, and I really, I'm very much like against people spending lots of money on old guitars just because they're old. Like, I don't understand that as a process. I don't understand the... uh, I understand collecting a lot because you want them to do different things,
3: but I don't understand that aspect of the collector's mentality. I'm gonna say a real hot take here. Okay. I felt
1: nothing when Notre Dame burned, and I don't understand why there was such an outcry from people about it. Like, I'm happy that nobody was hurt or died. But I don't give a shit about that building, especially with its ties to the Catholic Church. <laughs> fuck that building.
0: Yes. Uh, the For a second there, I thought you were referring to Notre Dame the school. Oh, well,
1: Notre Dame the school can go fuck itself, too. For yes. an entirely different set of circumstances. <laughs> I'm totally fine <laughs> with that. Uh... So, John Saxon is organizing a search party. Or the young girl who is missing. Mr. Harrison's out there, along with a bunch of townies. And then after this, we get a shot, and it's a silhouette of someone sitting, or like crouching down and sitting, outside the front of the sorority house. Do you think this was Peter? Because I don't think Billy's outside.
0: No, I think um, because... Because I think he's wearing, he's wearing green, which is it Peter's color. It kind of
1: like... And it kind of looked like there was that turtleneck yeah. collar in the silhouette. I think it was Peter.
0: Um, this is where Mrs. Mack, the house mother, while everyone else goes to, to help the search party, uh, Barb, I think, went upstairs drunk to pass out. And Mrs. Mack is going to leave to go to her sisters. So she'll be gone by the time they
3: get back, which plays into it because mrs mac gets got before anybody gets back but that's in a little bit
1: so claude Mm -hmm. the cat we finally see claude the cat on film (laughs) he's discovered claire's body and claude being a cat and cats are a sympathetic that's not a word cats have no feeling your cat will eat you So fast after you die, if it doesn't have food in its bowl, it's not even funny. There's no loyalty amongst cats. (laughs) Cat owners. Don't kid yourself that your cat loves you. It feels nothing. Sorry, that might be the hottest take we've ever had on this show.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's more shocking than the Notre Dame thing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it is, I don't know if it's a proven fact, but it is like there's stories that like a dog'll wait a couple days or a week before it starts to eat its dead owner. Cats wait, like, eight hours. (laughs) (laughs) And you see Claude up there licking Claire's plastic face. Also, can we talk about just the look of Claire and the fact that that bag is sucked into her mouth? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, it's like the suffocation never stopped. Because there was never that moment where she died and then had, like, a death gasp or, like, a release. It's like all of that vacuum and everything is still she's like completely frozen in that moment of death it's very disturbing
0: yeah it's I know it's not realistic but it is like her last breath was an inward breath and it just stuck like that and it is upsetting every time you see it
1: yeah it's such a great image it's the poster image yes which is wild Bob Clark is a maniac (laughs) Uh, yeah, so Mrs. Mac hears Claude upstairs, climbs up the ladder, and this is one of the first times where we really see Billy, and we only see his hands, but what do you think of this
0: hook sequence? Uh, first of all, I think it's kind of cool. Secondly, I think, um, if she, does she get impaled in the face? Is that what's happening here?
1: I believe it goes, like, under the jaw, and then up into her head, is how... Later on, it seems the hook is framed.
0: Okay, and so the weird things about it are, she gets hit, spasms for a second, and then like yanked right up into the attic. Like yeah, like 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 yank. But well, you can it see that the gone. hook
1: is on the hook is on a pulley. Yes, and so I love that Bailey hooks her, and then it's like he caught a fish, and I was like set the hook, and now reel her in.
0: Yeah uh but there's no big gout of blood that falls down
1: there's no blood i noticed that too yeah Yeah. which do you think that do you think that was just so bob clark could keep the characters unknowing of what's happening in the attic because if there was a blood splatter coming out then presumably we would think that the characters would see that blood on the floor
0: yeah I think uh it's it's gotta be I mean also there's not really any blood in this movie <laughs> it's it's uh
1: only only with the cop yes really
0: and then it's, it's not like it. it's not like streaming down him, it's just kind of around the wound mm. on his neck
1: yeah the the fact that this movie is this disturbing with this lack of gore mm-hmm. really says a lot to the the direction the writing and most importantly the fucking phone calls uh Oof. when we get that pov of billy freaking out in the attic and just like after he catches mrs mac he's just like freaking out and smashing shit
0: <laughs> just going nuts man um it have you seen um the house on sorority row no it has also a killer in an attic and It's not, it's not this good. And when I'm watching this, I'm like, just think of this other shittier movie, this other shittier version of it that I don't like as much. Uh, So
1: they, the search party finds the girl's body in the snow. Like I said, just as the mom begins to cry, her voice turns to the phone ringing, and then Jess picks up. I think it's Jess who picks up the phone. Yeah, Jess headed back early. Demented cries and help me. Like, just like, oh my God, this is intense.
3: Mm hmm. Uh,
1: she calls the phone company to report the obscene phone calls at this point,
3: right?
0: Um, I think so, but they don't actually do anything with it yet uh, for another couple of scenes. Like, the which John Saxon gets to look like the genius when he pieces together the murdered teen, Claire missing, and the obscene phone calls all being linked.
1: Yeah. Because the first cop, I can't remember his name, the dumb one, is super dismissive and tells her that it's probably just one of her boyfriends playing a little joke. Yes. Which is just what a, <laughs> what a dismissive asshole man, <laughs> you know? Uh, this movie, we haven't really talked about the, just the feminism of this movie. Mm-hmm. For for having been shot and written in 1974, this movie is, I think, incredibly progressive. Yeah. What it says about the plight of women and what they have to deal with, with not only men thinking that they have rights to their bodies as far as like choices that can be made about having a baby or having an abortion. And then we see just how dismissive men are, or her father, how judgmental her father is of her potentially sexual lifestyle. It, it goes on and on of like how many ways. Women are just treated like shit in this movie, does a surprisingly wonderful job at pointing out how much, how bullshit it all is.
0: Yes. And everyone in power, like all of the men in power, repeatedly fuck up. Yeah. And, and Saxon's
1: like the only one that's kind of, kind of with it.
0: Yes. But even then, he, I mean, we'll see. Doesn't do a great job.
1: No. All right. You know who's with it, though? Bill Graham. The phone tech guy? Yes. Boy, I, I can't wait to talk about that guy.
0: Um, uh, Peter wants to get married and give up his position in the music conservatory. Uh, and this,
1: this conversation between Peter and Jess. Excellent.
0: That's, that's exactly what I wrote. I was like, they had this great conversation like they're actual adults actually de- dealing with actual issues. Well. He's
3: not
1: dealing with it like an adult. No, I, she's like, listen, I have dreams, and just because this happened doesn't mean I'm going to sacrifice my entire life just just to make you happy or whatever you want. And he doesn't even realize it. he's still like he does that bullshit thing of like, oh yeah, but you can have a kid and still do all that other stuff. Yes, it's like no, 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 no. That's not that's not how this works. I mean, if you want to be, like, a real shithead parent who's constantly on the road and, like, not there at all for their kids, yeah, you can do that. But most of the time, kids are a complete commitment. I don't even have them, and I know that. (laughs)
0: Uh, Yeah, his his stance on this really is very selfish, and the way that he frames it as trying not to be selfish i think is really truthful and works really well uh and does not paint him in a good light throughout the whole thing but
1: great performance by this guy as you said before because he's not over the top Mm -hmm. he's not playing like a complete villainous asshole who's i I mean he's he's an asshole but he's not he's not there yet to where he's overselling
0: right and um, he's just upsetting. I don't like him uh, um
1: up next, we have one of my favorite characters who I don't think says a single word in the entire movie. Who's that the giggling the
0: giggling detective <laughs> He's credited as the laughing detective
1: <laughs> <laughs> he's great I yes. I love him.
2: yeah to no exchange F.E. No exchange?
1: Yeah, Felicia. One of the girls that was in this afternoon gave it to me. She gave it to you? Yeah. Nash, I don't think you could pick your nose without written instructions.
3: Dirty,
2: ain't it? <laughs> and
1: yes. when he when he says that, and the detective completely loses it, I was cracking up too. In a way that I I don't really laugh out loud at that many com- like comedies, right? But this <laughs> this had me going.
0: The the editing bouncing back and forth between the police station uh, as their conversation happens and you're right. Like it's legitimately funny. Uh, and also kind of upsetting in that, that first officer who took the report, uh, blew it off, but it edits between that and the sorority house, uh, when Peter and Jess are having their confrontation and it's like the confrontation ratchets up and then you bounce back to the police station and you get this little moment of levity and then it bounces back. And they've gone up another notch while we've been gone, and it's like this is where Peter becomes aggressive.
1: That's going to say. Remember how Peter wasn't was just borderline. Yes, he's he's now crossed it. Yep. <laughs> he tells her, "If you try to get that abortion, you're going to be very sorry." Yes. Oh, okay.
3: Fuck you.
0: <laughs> and then the cops finally come to the house uh, to take a look at Claire's room and. Uh, the phone line guy comes to put a tap on the phone line. What's his name?
1: Yes. Uh, I believe it's Bill Graham, which cracked me up because of the San Francisco concert producer. Yeah, whatever. Um, I love phone guy. I know we've talked about, I love when a movie, you just get to watch somebody doing a job Mm -hmm. or like a cool job. This whole thing with the phone system and him trying to physically trace it through this like mechanical phone network fascinates me. I think this is so cool, and I love that it's in this movie, and that Bob Clark
0: included this. yeah, it would seem like uh, counterintuitive to spend time with this tertiary character doing this part of the job, like it would seem like you should stay with whoever is in the house and being hunted. But it actually is more upsetting to leave them alone for a few minutes and go. And you see this other part that just ratchets up the tension.
3: Absolutely.
1: And it also just gives meaning to the necessity to keep him on the phone longer. Mm-hmm. Whereas you might say, oh, why? Or that's, that's stupid bullshit movie logic whatever. But then to get to see the tech... Running down these aisles, I don't even know what the hell he. I don't know what this room is. Like, I have no idea. Yeah. Apparently, I know nothing about telephones or how they used to function. Um, but it, it's uh ah, it's so cool. I I just love it. Yep. It I love it so much.
0: Um, the police leave after they put in their tap. They leave one officer posted outside, uh, and here. Peter actually hasn't left. He's out on the sidewalk. Uh, This is where I realized, like, just like you were saying, I love how much of this is a procedural film and it's like grounded in the reality of the uh, investigation around the murder and around the, the missing girl and everything. Like it's not, there's no investigation like this in a Friday, the 13th film or in Halloween, really. Yeah. It's you don't get all this extra. This part feels like a, more like a Michael Mann film where you get, like you said, like people doing their jobs and trying to to work it out.
1: It's funny you say that because I was uh, that's immediately what I was thinking of is thief and heat. Mm-hmm. As far as just showing people doing technical shit that I don't know what they're up to, but I'm fascinated by it.
3: Yep. Um. So.
1: Uh, We also get Billy hanging out with Claire's body. He's now put a doll in her lap and he's rocking her. The fact that Billy's hanging out with Claire's body like he's a little kid with a toy. Mm -hmm. Upsetting.
3: Yep. Uh, Also that doll, upsetting. (laughs)
0: Yeah, where did that doll come from? (laughs) I don't know. It's like it's burned up looking or something. And yeah, I didn't like uh, that.
1: Billy has time for arts and crafts waiting, hanging around (laughs) up there. Uh uh oh, so uh Billy's gonna go for Barb yep,
0: next.
3: Yep.
1: Wow, when he walks up to her and he says, Agnes, it's me, Billy, pretty Agnes, it's alright. Uh Yikes. Yeah. And, <laughs> and with all the weapons that are on her bedstand. And he chooses the unicorn.
0: Yes. No. <laughs> this is the and the way Once again, that this is cut because we see him uh, go into the room and he's all in shadow and stuff. And then Jess is in another room and starts hearing a screaming type sound and she runs into Barb's room. And it turns out Barb is having an asthma attack because she was panicking in her sleep and couldn't breathe well. She was having a nightmare or something.
3: Oh, yeah. Her
1: nightmare is that so, uh, someone's coming into her room
0: yes so, oh yeah. like having had a um a drug induced uh night terror like that before um when i was on pain meds like i've had that you
2: got
1: you got the demon on your chest thing
0: i had someone st- like standing in my doorway in the bedroom doorway and i screamed really? and screamed and woke up the whole house and like it was horrifying. Uh but did you move? Not for a while. It was the weirdest thing. I was in that reality, I think, for much longer. And then wow. I couldn't shake it once I was awake. Like weird.
3: We did a sweep so
0: you... we did a sweep of the apartment because I was like, something's fucky. Wow.
1: Yeah. That's scary. Did you know about sleep paralysis events before that? No. See, I, I'm glad that they're talked about more often now. So that way, if I ever did experience that feeling of like something sitting on my chest or whatever, yeah, hopefully in the back of my mind, I would at least now have the knowledge of like, oh, this is one of those things. Yeah, and it's gonna pass, you know. But to just experience that with no knowledge that it's a common or somewhat common mental condition or whatever, yeah, that would be
0: extra terrifying. Ugh, Ugh. it creeps me out, and the fact that the description of what she is saying like works both as a nightmare and as the actual thing that just happened. And like, she might've been half awake in a drunken stupor and seen him come in and incorporated that into a dream. Like, uh, it is, it's so this, the, what is the tagline for this movie? If this doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. Uh, that's, I feel that during these scenes.
1: Really? Yes. That's a wonderful tagline. (laughs) I know. What's what's your favorite tagline or one that you just like stuck with you? Because the one that I think of often or not often, but it's not even a movie that I like. But Last House on the Left, which is uh, keep reminding yourself is just a movie.
3: Oh, yeah. Um, I think the, the the one that I love because it's it's
0: incorrect is uh, for Suspiria. And it's like the only thing more terrifying than the last 12 minutes of this movie are the first 92. Okay.
3: I I like that because it's like kind of inexplicable. And I think that um,
0: Suspiria is not 104 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they did that off of a, uh, off of an assembly cut or something. Um and, of course, um, in the space, no one can hear you scream.
1: That's a great one. That's a great one. I think Anaconda copied that. What? In- if, you can't, if you can't breathe, you can't scream. Anaconda. Um, okay. Were you an Anaconda guy? You probably, That's probably an age gap thing.
0: Yeah. Um, I've think- I
1: was like 11 years old when Anaconda came out, and my friends and I were very excited to see it in theater.
0: I think I've only seen it um, in the
3: like a riff tracks version. Oh, uh, Bonnie and Clyde—they're young, they're in love, and they kill people. That's eh. oh, eh. come on! Eh. I like um, that one. So Barb
1: gets killed, and I love the cross cutting here because a bunch of choir. A bunch of Caroline children Mm -hmm. show up at the sorority door, so Jess is down, hanging out, listening to them. And so they're singing, Oh, Come Let Us Adore Him, as Billy is stabbing Barb to death with a glass unicorn. Uh, Crazy shit. But the Mm cross-cutting made it so much more impactful.
0: Um,
3: Did this sequence strike you as something like out of a giallo film? Um, yeah, kind of.
1: I, I I think if there was more blood spray, okay. it could be kind of like Tenebra-ish. But I don't know. I usually think of, like, Giallo, I only think of um Argento. And I've only seen, I don't know, like two or three Argento movies. So I, I really don't have that strong of a grasp on it. I would love to watch, um, what's the one with the raincoat? Uh, little little missing kid in a raincoat.
3: The don't look now.
1: Yeah, That's- I've never seen that one. I know, I know, like the big reveal moment of that because I used to watch VH one hundred scariest moments or whatever. Yes, I spoiled a lot of classics for myself that way. But it also got me more interested in horror as a genre. So, it, I I don't know. I don't really blame
0: myself. No, and uh, I think we all did that with. Um that and Bravo's Hundred Scariest Moments. Uh yeah. and any AFI top whatever of whatever lists as yeah. well.
1: But it was also it was back when I hadn't I was very new to horror. So I had not seen hardly anything, you know? And so it's just uh It was like it was a way for me to dig deeper and try to figure out what was worth checking out and what was what I wanted to pursue.
0: Definitely, and it's um I even liked, there was a, what do they call it? Boogeymen, I think. A DVD compilation of kills from different horror movies. And people, uh, I think there were interview clips on there as well. Uh, people talking about them. Same kind of thing. I really enjoyed that. That's pretty cool. And it, you know, leads you to hopefully find things that you wouldn't have found otherwise.
1: Yeah. Um. So, Jess is trying again to keep Billy on the line. And... um. This one call at one point uh, does Billy say something about a baby? Because he says something about like having a wart removed.
0: Yes, he says kill the baby, kill the baby, something like that, killing it.
1: It's like having a wart removed, and I think that's what causes her to say, "Oh my god." Yes. Yeah, Um.
0: and it's uh, she. She tries to tell the police officer that it didn't mean anything, but then they also figure out that she's pregnant, and Peter doesn't want to. Or Peter wants her to keep it. Uh so all suspicion goes to Peter at this point.
1: Yeah. Um, I really liked that they put in Peter calls and so John Saxon tells the tech guy, Hey, track this guy's number 2
2: mm-hmm.
1: And but we don't get to trace it. So I thought that was a great moment of like Bob Clark pushing pushing the mystery further along. Mm-hmm. Where instead of like answering the question there or whatever, he he keeps us in suspense. And that was a great way to do it. If Peter wasn't on the phone long enough to trace his either.
0: Uh, And we get the two guys from the search party for the girl earlier. um, Oh boy. Who are doing canvassing. And are they drunk? Is that the, what's supposed to be happening uh, here? I don't or? know,
1: but people are awfully giggly for being on a search party where there's a dead teenage girl and they're out looking for her murderer. Mm-hmm. People seem awfully goofy and lighthearted about everything.
0: Yes. And uh but this makes Jess and Phyllis uh realize that they have not locked the doors of the house. And Phyllis goes into Barb's room to check the windows, and the door slams shut behind her.
3: Yeah,
1: there's a big scary noise as the door closes. Um, as Jess is on the phone again, I think with Saxon this time, there's some shadow in the background, and you can see it's like the stairs behind her. Mm-hmm. And... um. There's something, someone moving around up there. And it's not even really called that much attention to. It's right. Just one of those creepy little things.
3: Um,
0: just on the phone with Billy again. And this is where I wondered if the calls are coming from inside the house, he gets so loud. How do they not hear this from elsewhere? So
1: at one point it does look like at this point she's kind of looking up the stairs. Mm-hmm. Like maybe I heard something up there. But yeah, I hear you. Maybe I don't know. You know what it is? The house mom lives in a sorority and the only way she's able to cope with that is with double thick doors and walls.
0: <laughs> that tracks. You know? Okay.
1: Yeah. It's in it's in the extended cut.
0: Uh and this is where our boy f- from the phone company finally traces the place down and he lifts this big cover on some sort of thing that's moving in the phone terminal and plugs another receiver into it. And I'm like, it looks,
1: did you feel it was very matrixy?
0: Yes. It it feels like
1: embodiment of a network of machines and
0: you're plugging into it. Yeah. uh, Like a server room somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly what it's not like. Oh my God. Sorry. I threw my coffee We're mic. talking
1: about all this scary shit, and then you make a big noise?
0: It scared me, too. <laughs> uh, um, the uh. Oh, this is when the message gets relayed to
3: John Saxon that the f- calls are coming from inside the house. John Saxon can't get through to Jess or
0: the police officer who's supposed to be watching her. And I do not know I've seen this movie multiple times and we know from the beginning that the killer is hiding inside the house. Why does this scene still put a lump in my throat of, of fright?
3: How can that still happen? It's so well executed. Well, I don't think we're a hundred percent
1: sure that the calls are coming from inside the house. Like I know we know that the killer has been inside the house Mm -hmm. and they mentioned earlier that, the house mom has her own separate line. Mm -hmm. But we're not... I don't know, when they show him on the phone in her room, it doesn't seem completely obvious that that's the house mom's room. Yeah, yeah. So I think there is still some suspense to that, but then just... It's just one... It's like when... It's the same line as when a stranger calls. Yeah. The calls coming from inside the house. It's just one of the all-time great... Urban legend, holy fuck moments. I, <laughs> it's it's such like a perfect horror moment of what of how to like encapsulate dread and fear. Is it's coming from within.
0: So you said you talked about urban legend. This is based on both the urban legend of uh the babysitter and a real life killing that happened in the forties, uh, in Montreal. I don't know what parts are based on that, but it says there was a 14 year old boy who bludgeoned several of his family members to death.
1: How does that relate to this? Movie?
0: I don't know, but <laughs> that's the, not what this is about. The screenwriter claims that he's been in, he was inspired by this series of murders. So,
1: I uh, worry about. I hope he didn't use the word inspired.
3: Inspired Ugh. seems
1: like a weird word. <laughs> um so yeah, so John Saxon can only get through to goddamn Nash, the dumb idiot cop. And so he tells Nash I don't know why he tells her don't for no matter what you do, don't tell her the killer's in the house, but just tell her she needs to leave. Mm-hmm. To get her to a not panic, but I feel like It's kind of a moment of panic might be necessary. What do
0: you think? I think it's weird because it feels like you could say, okay, I'm going to tell you something. Like you could say
3: something along those lines, right? Of like, don't react, but the killer's in the house. But because otherwise, we're going to have
0: what actually happens where Jess goes to get the other women who she thinks are still upstairs in bed.
2: Yeah.
3: Because she doesn't know why she's leaving the house. And even when she does, she's like, thinks it's still safe. Yeah. It's, it's, she's calling for Barb and Phil. And also the idea
1: of calling out for your friends who are already dead mm-hmm. and you don't even know it. It's just a very morbid thought to me. Like it, it's, She's so alone right now in that house.
0: Yes, and doesn't know it
1: And she thinks there's a cop outside and two friends upstairs. Yes. And yet she's alone with the killer. That's and her psycho boyfriend outside.
0: (laughs) Yes. And scary as all shit, man. Does not realize that there, instead of a cop and two friends, there's five corpses surrounding her. (laughs) That's horrifying. And one evil cat that's hungry. Yes. He's going to have a buffet. (laughs)
2: <laughs>
1: uh, I hope I didn't offend you with that cat take.
0: No, I'm, I'm fully expecting Hopkins to start gnawing on me uh, if, I, <laughs> if I would pass away. It, it's fine.
2: So uh,
1: that long zoom from upstairs on Jess's face as Nash is yelling at her, the call's coming from mm-hmm. inside the house, get out. And man, what a zoom that is from upstairs yep. from the killer's lair. That's a that's a goosebump moment for me.
0: That's one of those like it works on two different levels because I'm also amazed at the the accuracy of like the focus pulling and the filmmaking the like the logistics of making that shot are also very impressive.
1: <laughs> I never even think about pulling focus.
3: Oh god. It so just... back
1: then did they they still had Independent cameraman and focus puller in the
0: 70s? Uh, Yes, you would a lot of times have a focus puller, but he was operating by distance because he wouldn't have like a video assist monitor.
1: Yeah, there's no monitors. So they were just working off of math?
0: Yes, and and marks. So they would run through it and the the cameraman would say, like, uh, starting at point A, this is where we need to be. When we get to point B, it needs to be here. And so you would try to... And
1: back then, on those cameras, it would have been completely mechanical. So I wonder how you could adjust the focus without influencing the shot at all, you know?
0: They have, uh, underneath the lens, there'll be two rods that stick out. Mm -hmm. And you clamp a gear to one of those rods that is geared to the teeth of the focus ring. And then at the other end of that gear, it's on a, a whip cable. Yeah. And like a like a throttle like a accelerator cable, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there's a dial on the other end that you can turn, that turns the gear that then turns the focus wheel without you actually having to touch the the lens. Wow, that's and wild! You can be like four or five feet away from the camera and controlling yeah. the focus.
1: Doing that without a monitor, though, yes. seems exceptionally hard. And then not knowing if you got the shot until it, it gets developed and printed. Yes. How did anyone successfully make anything?
0: I don't know because the idea (laughs) that I can like play back any of my shots as soon as I do them. Yeah. And sometimes still have a hard time with uh, focus. Yeah. That's amazing. Like
1: or just leaving the camera running. Yeah. Can't leave the cameras running back then where you can now.
0: That's uh, have you ever seen um, there's a you probably haven't but Uh, Quentin Tarantino directed one of the sequences of the first Sin City film. Um, I think it was the first one. And Robert Rodriguez... I
1: was was into Sin City
0: back in the day. So one of the extras on the DVD, uh, I don't know if it's on the digital edition or not, but is this like 17-minute take of Tarantino and Rodriguez rehearsing with Clive Owen, um, rehearsing the scene and then shooting it. Because Rodriguez is like, we can just shoot like yeah we can shoot and if there's anything good in here we'll use it and if not we'll use it for the behind the scenes and it's one of the only times that you get to see tarantino actually like trying to direct because he never uses digital he always uses film
1: when i worked as an intern at a production house in la that did behind the scenes dvd featurettes and stuff for marvel and disney mm mm-hmm. This was one of my main complaints. I was just like, this is all bullshit advertising production. Like, oh, we send out a producer to interview them. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to do a bunch of talking heads selling the movie. And it's like, I just want to tell them, like, put me on set with a mini DV camera and just let me shoot behind the scenes. And we'll just do like a fucking verite mm-hmm. style. Movie production documentary. I think people would find that so much more enlightening and fascinating than whatever almost scripted garbage that is produced.
0: Yes, that's. there's a reason that none of those DVD fluff pieces um, have become like legendary, but the films um, that uh, Kubrick's daughter shot behind the scenes of The Shining and that Coppola's family did around Hearts Apocalypse of Darkness. Now. Man, yeah. yeah.
1: Hearts of Darkness is amazing. Yep. And that's like wouldn't wouldn't it be awesome to just I don't know, see how fake everything on a Marvel movie shoot is. It's just oh God. like <laughs> everyone running around with like giant green cubes and just like ah we'll fix it in post, don't worry about it. Uh, just... I just
0: I was thinking about that <laughs> watching the Matrix last night because The Matrix was still a very tactile movie, right? Like, there's a... I mean, they used the skyline of Nashville for the opening shots, the roof chase scene, which I didn't know. I did not know that. Um, Eli pointed that out last night as we were watching it, Uh, and so clearly, it's, you know, uh, a mat or a cyclorama that they had for something else, that they just used it, um, or that they green-screened it in, but So much of that was actually done by the Wachowskis that it feels like still of a whole piece. So many of the Marvel things, you don't get to shoot the action if you're the director. That's a second unit who, like, that director specializes in shooting the action. And so it all has the house style, and it feels different than the the dialogue,
3: emotional beats. That's a great point, because I think... I'm not a obviously a huge fan but I've seen a
1: number of the MCU movies over time and it just I think you're totally right that as soon as the action starts they are indecipherable from each other mm-hmm. those movies whereas if you watch I don't know like a a movie by like the the uh, fuck hardcore henry and the Odenkirk Kirk movie Oh or yeah, yeah, like, yeah. That, like That guy has such a unique style to how he shoots action that you feel like you're in a different director's hands. Yes. Um, I think it's really stupid to only give a director half or two-thirds of a movie to have their influence on.
0: That's one of my problems with the more modern Bond movies as well, is that they do the same thing.
1: I... Were you ever a Bond guy? Because I grew up with Brosnan, and I have not seen any of the Connery. I maybe have seen a Connery as a kid, maybe, but no. Bond has never been like any part of my life except for GoldenEye video game.
0: Oh no, I love James Bond. I've got the the box set of all the books upstairs in the office. Like, so are and, you not I'm a
1: Daniel it. Craig guy, or are you just not
0: the new?
3: Oh no, movies. I
0: like the I like the new movies on the whole. I think that it's kind of bs that they that they do that uh where the action could be really interesting um e- the action of skyfall is still i think excellent because deacons shot almost all of it from what I understand um and so it's got a great look to it uh and still has style and verve um but I haven't seen the new one yet, but from what I understand it's a little more generic action film in its presentation of those things.
1: You know it's not generic horror film. When Jess goes upstairs to look for Phil and Barb and we fucking finally see Billy's eye in the Uh, crack of the door. This eye looks like it has two corneas? One, or irises, whatever the color part is. It's like a red on top of a blue eye or so I don't know what's going on, but this is like the fact that we don't see Billy hardly at all and then we get this eyeball shot through the crack of the door it's partially open
0: this is fucking so scary yeah he looks like a monster or something, and of course with the sounds that he makes it does not dispel that at all yeah
1: of course he's like whispering it just oh God, run, Jess. Jesus Christ. Yeah, she's run. got a
0: fireplace poker. Like she's going to do something with that.
1: Well. Well. I she mean, she does. Yeah. <laughs> she's uh, she's pretty adept with that fireplace poker.
0: But okay, and I know that it's different. I would like to think I would like to see somebody actually when they first attack the killer and they have the upper hand not run away immediately. Because that's what she does. They scuffle, and she gets away and manages to take shelter in the basement stairwell and lock the door against him.
1: Do you want me to give you really bad horror movie analysis?
0: Yes, please.
1: Well, our final girl is finally able to fight back when she grabs the phallus of the fireplace poker, and then she is given the male power to fight back. Shut up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I do want to read that book, though, so... (laughs) i
1: am not gonna write it
0: no there's a book called men women and chainsaws that all that sprang from
1: oh yeah it's i'm sure there's like kind of something there but it's also like it's such stupid bullshit like shut up (laughs) it's a it's a weapon she's using a weapon um that scene that shot where billy grabs her hair over the banister Yeah. yeah it just it's a little moment but this really virulent,
0: yeah. It uh, it's one of those where I'm like, How did they do that? Because it looks real.
1: <laughs> it, I, it, I, she took a hard fall there, man. I don't know. The actress, I looked like she took a shot there, yeah. I don't know. I hope not, or
3: I hope she's all
1: right. Uh, um, Lieutenant, it, so she, oh, go ahead.
0: So, Lieutenant John Saxon starts racing across town, and Jess is trying to sneak out of the basement. Uh which is a it's a walkout basement in the back.
1: Billy banging on the basement door. Uh-huh. I mean I, I know I'm just gonna say like the noises this guy makes, but again, whoever the fuck they recorded to do all of these Billy noises did an incredible job. As we see that that bolt pushing again mm-hmm. and again and just hoping that door's not gonna break. Um this reminded me also a lot of like um Night of the Living Dead.
3: Oh, yeah, like okay. of
1: hunkering down in the basement at the end. Um, Alright, so she's hiding in the basement. Billy leaves. And then she realizes that Peter is outside the window. And Peter's... Just seeing Peter's silhouette outside the window. And then he rubs the glass to see in. hmm What do you think's going on here? Why, Why the hell would Peter... Be so desperate to get to her if he's not Billy, which I don't think he is. I mean, yeah, pretty obvious he's not. But why would he be breaking into this house to get to her? I don't know because unless he has bad intentions.
0: This was my note: was when he busts the window with his elbow to come through that door. I was like, really, dude? Like, she.
1: This is this is like terrifying if billy doesn't kill this woman i'm going to kill her first mentality or something like, yeah i don't know what the fuck he was up to which i think credit to bob clark and the writer of this movie who i can't remember his name because i love how ambiguous this is at the end i think it's wonderful mm-hmm. i don't know what the fuck peter was doing something bad
0: yes yes
3: But uh, I don't
0: know. The thing is, I don't question it in the moment. I just accept that Peter would be unhinged enough to do this because he's been lurking outside the house. He already threatened her. He he broke the piano. Like he's not a stable person. Like
1: no, I buy it. Yes, I buy it. This guy's been threatening, increasingly threatening, as the movie has progressed. Um, so he breaks in and he's approaching. And like you said before, the ambiguity in this actor in his face, mm-hmm. you can't get a read on it. And so even here, how he's approaching her and he sees her and he's like, Jess, what are you doing under? But there's like, you still feel something sinister yes. in, in how he moves towards her. It's like he's lurching towards her. It's not, like, an open thing of, like, a boyfriend who's concerned about his girlfriend who's hiding in the basement. It it feels predatory.
0: Yep. It, he, like, that turn, it felt like a Jack Nicholson turn. Like, when he hears her and then kind of turns and his face is in the light. Like, it's so creepy. And I'm like, I, I know, once again, I know this dude is not the killer. He's not a good dude, but he's not the killer. But it still creeps me out (laughs) how well it's done.
1: And I still... So, yeah. He approaches her. We cut to sex in a cup. He pulls up outside the house. (laughs) The cop is dead with a slit throat. And then they hear the scream. They hear Jess scream and they break into the house. They kick the door down into the attic. And she has killed Peter with seemingly one swing of the fire brand to his forehead Uh uh-huh and it looks like she then passed out from the shock of everything the way that they're positioned at the end with like his bleeding head on her lap and i you can't really tell if she's dead Mm -hmm. or in shock or what it it's it's really unsettling it's similar to how like barb and phil their bodies are posed earlier Mm -hmm. in the movie when we finally see their bodies And it's just like kind of a tangle of humans, and you're not really sure what's happening or what's going on. It's very, very disturbing.
0: The the body-finding scene, we kind of glossed over it a little bit, but I think that it's better (gasps) than the body-finding scene in Halloween. When Jamie Lee Curtis finds everybody's bodies upstairs and finds the headstone, the Judith Myers headstone.
1: Halloween feels a little more... Haunted house at yes. that time, where it's like things are gonna go boo, right? And I don't, I don't know. This movie has serious dread going
0: through it. Yes, this it, it feels. I don't want to say realistic, but it's it hits a different chord. Grounded? Yeah, I think so.
1: Primal? I, I don't know. Something. Maybe it's just the the lack of fantasy. Yeah. That Billy's not masked? Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't believe in Michael Myers. I know for a fact Billy's are out there.
0: Yes, that's incredibly true. Uh, we get a quick little wrap-up as the police try to figure out why Peter would go on a killing spree, and Jess is kind of in and out of consciousness on in her bedroom, it looks like. Um,
1: Poor Mr. Harris passes out from shock. This dude has had a day, and the fact that this movie ends, and he still doesn't know
3: anything yes. about his
1: daughter, that's really fucked up. This guy doesn't even get the closure of knowing her; she's dead.
0: The This scene, I think there might be two or three shots, but most of it is one static camera shot, uh, like one angle from outside this room, and as the policemen come and go and the press starts coming in and all these different things start happening, everybody's heads are cut off. We see just full length in the bed and we see, um, Claire's dad sitting in a chair, but everybody else is like almost disembodied and then they all leave.
3: And it's just, it's very, um, impersonal and off putting, like, you know, it,
0: it keeps you at an arm's length. And keeps you, like, cringing because something could still happen. Like, I was still looking in the corners of the frame and, like, the closet door in the room and stuff like that the whole time.
3: The fact
1: that these people then, they take Mr. Harrison to the hospital. They turn the light off. Everyone just leaves this traumatized, severely traumatized girl who's just been attacked and murdered somebody they leave her alone and like as we pull out of the house for this last or the the very end there's one cop on the porch but it's like that's not enough Mm -hmm. this girl why is she not in a hospital or anywhere else where she's around people who can take care of her like this is this is crazy leaving her here by herself
0: And they think the danger is over, and I love how the camera actually shows us that it's not, because it moves from that first position and glides through the other murder scenes. This
1: is beautiful camera
0: movement. And I don't know, this had to be one dolly shot, because Steadicam rigs weren't around in 74.
1: It's beautiful, the shot, like of the bare mattress, and you see the blood stains mm-hmm. on it of Barb's room, and and then it just keeps moving. And in the reflections on the photographs, you get the Christmas lights outside. It ah, so good.
0: And it goes uh, past Claire's empty room, and then floats up, like points up in towards the the attic once again. And we hear Billy sing songy giggling from the attic.
3: Creaking uh, around there. Uh, yeah,
1: I, I have a little lower back spot, uh, tingles right now. Yep. And now, what's, what song plays at the very end? Uh, is it Hark the Herald? I don't remember.
3: Um,
1: Fuck. It's so good, though, because yeah. honestly, this, to me, is a perfect ending to a movie. We go back into Billy's lair through the camera, and we just see Claire's body. And we know that the horror is not over. He's still up there. And we zoom back. And we zoom back to almost the initial shot. But now we're higher above it from the start of the movie. And there's one cop out there. And then the phone starts to ring. Yeah, Damn it, it, Bob Clark. You (laughs) nailed it! it, I don't know.
0: (sighs) Once again, I don't know how they do this shot. Because it must have had the longest zoom lens, right? Because it starts on Mrs. Mac's face in the attic. And then there's pulls a, back it's, it's, to...
1: Re- it's a two. Okay. There's one shot that's zoomed in on Mac's face and then zooms out to show Claire. And then they move the camera further back and then there's like a second zoom shot that's on Claire's face, face. and then we zoom back, back out okay. to a second location. Yeah, but so cool and so perfect. And that phone ringing at the end with the Christmas music playing. God damn it, I love it so much.
0: And I
1: think... It, it's 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 on the level for me of like, loomis poking his head over in halloween and seeing michael myers is gone
0: yes i think the 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 bookends of the shots that are extremely similar almost look like a postcard right like you totally. s- you see this totally. kind of like victorian gothic or whatever kind of looking house with all the lights all over it and snow Such like an image
1: of like perfect americana Christmas. yes
0: and all the darkness that happens inside and it's like the way that it circles through the front door and then back out that attic is just so
3: masterful, I think. Well, goddamn, Those are <laughs> two exhilarating Christmas
1: movies. And I love it because neither of these is what I would Im- immediately think of as a Christmas movie. Maybe it's a wonderful life, but after having watched it's a wonderful life, I'm like, this is, barely a christmas movie. Yes. This is like a depression suicide movie with anti-capitalism. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> like this is not really a seasonal movie at all. Um but I'll I'll be honest, these both did get me a little bit more into the holiday spirit as we are now 10 days away from Christmas.
0: Uh definitely here as well. I've got some other like non-traditional christmas movies that I like to watch um this time of year that I guess they are traditional now because I like to watch them. So they're traditions for me.
3: So to rate Black Christmas, this is a hard one for me because this is, I feel like this is on par with Halloween 1 for me. Okay. And Halloween
1: 1 is a five-star. And talking about this with you and the fact that I still felt scared and so much of the technique is there and the quality of direction and cinematography. Performance. It, I gotta do it, man. Gotta gotta go five stars for Black Christmas. Uh-huh. It's it it fucking holds up so well. And its message of like feminism holds up incredibly well 47 years later, and it's it's just a hell of a picture.
0: Uh yeah, I'm giving it four and a half and and a heart because uh, the heart, a lot of times, I think for me, is either it actually emotionally got me or that I love the filmmaking of it. And that's what it is in this case. It is, I could watch this just from an editing standpoint and be be excited the whole time I was watching the movie. Like with the sound off, like Hitchcock said, pure cinema should be, uh, you should be able to tell the story without having to hear dialogue. Ooh. Yeah. I like that. And, uh, Steven Soderbergh does, uh, he would bootleg movies on his website where he would pull the dialogue off and then put a new score underneath it and watch it to study it. And then he'd like leak them to the web, uh, which I love about him. He's, he's a crazy person.
1: That does sound crazy, but a fun experiment though. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you but I can't wait now to watch a Christmas story in the next week or so <laughs> and just let Bob Clark finish his Christmas saga.
2: <laughs>
0: the uh, Once again, I think a movie that is darker
3: than most people think of it. A little more upsetting. A little weirder. Yeah. <laughs> it's not very gory, but it's super fucked up. Yes. So, Um, that'll wrap us up for the year, bud. Oh, wow. Hee-haw,
1: my friend. Merry Christmas.
0: And Happy New Year.
1: Um, hey, man. I mean, we're not at a full year yet, but this has been... From where 2021 began to where it's ending now, I think I'm in a much better place. Mentally, physically, and uh, I think the show has a pretty significant part to play in my overall health and happiness. So thank you. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you as well. It has been one of the pleasures of my year. I know that when we talked about this show to begin with, you talked about like the show would grow as our friendship grew, like you were prognosticating that we would become closer and we definitely have. And you didn't want it. No, you
1: didn't want it, but I told you I'm like, it's going to happen. It's going to happen <laughs> and you're going to like
0: it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, uh, if anybody out there is wondering, Sean and I check in with each other almost every day, just even if it's not movie related, just to see how the other one is doing. And yeah, you know, I know we bullshit about what we had for dinner or whatever, but it is really a comfort to have somebody like that in my life. And I thank you for that
1: hell yeah man mental health is a uh it's a buddy system i like it you know it takes two to tango or something <laughs> so on that note listeners if you want to reach out to us you can join our discord i'm sure you guys can figure out how to hit us up otherwise uh feel free if you need to vent or whatever mm-hmm. i know holidays can be a real stressful time so josh if you have anything else to say
0: no that's good
1: all right, well then, everyone, I wish you the happiest of holidays. Have a wonderful new year. We will be back January 4th talking about Can't Hardly Wait and your Next with our friend Tay. It's going to be a really fun episode. So in the meantime, be kind to yourselves. Be kind to your neighbors. Take care, everyone. We'll see you in two weeks.